is there such a thing as writer's block? Well, what does it take to be super creative over the course of a career, over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? Four specific nootropics that you can use to improve your creativity. 20% of scientists and researchers take prescription drugs in order to increase their performance in some way. It's very hard to be an artist and to survive over any reasonable period of time. Creativity now is as important in education as literature. I think the writing all right merry christmas happy new year and all that jazz we made it welcome to 2019 and another episode of the writer's block podcast okay my aim this year was to put out at least one episode each month then here we are at the start of feb and i failed that already what are you gonna do anyway i have recorded two already this year so i get the next one out before the end of the month to make up for it hopefully um, this episode is with my new friend and i'm totally going to screw up the pronunciation pronunci- see i can't even say that word the pronunciation of his name Yarsen Vanderwerf. fingers crossed i got that right and that's probably why most people call him jay for simplicity's sake australian born to a dutch immigrant family jay's a uh, he is a luthier residing in lara which is just outside of uh, geelong here in victoria for those that don't know what a luthier is, it's someone who builds guitars. Jay probably first came onto my radar after discovering his Instagram profile last year. And uh, being a guitarist myself, I quickly became a fan of his work. Um, he was nice enough to put together a rad looking guitar and even better sounding um, for me to use on a run of shows that I'm doing currently with uh, Melbourne band Area 7. Um, and it's been a dream to play. You can find clips of the Teletron on his Instagram or my personal one. I want to keep this as short as possible as we, uh, we've covered an incredible amount in the uh, three hours we were together. He's got an incredible story which I know you're going to love and appreciate. Um, everything from growing up in a rough area of New Zealand, failing every subject at school and being thrown in and out of detention centres. After finding his way as a guitar tech and session guitarist, he's toured and worked with uh, some of the world's biggest rock and pop acts, including, uh, let me see, U2, Bon Jovi, ACDC, Blink-182, Hilary Duff, Avril Lavigne, and more. Um, then there was the high-level security work, serving as personal security nearly every rapper you can imagine, Moss Def, Vera Monch, and even people like Henry Rollins. This conversation was chock full of highlights and uh, some extremely low points as well. I found it incredibly inspiring. Not only is Jay an amazing luthier, gaining the respect and appreciation from some of the world's elite, but he's also an entrepreneur. He's like a wealth of knowledge and just an incredible human being. If you're a guitarist, a fan of music or any type of creative artist, you're going to pull a lot of value from this episode. The only place you can reach out to Jay is on his Instagram, which is uh, at Temple Guitars. That's T-E-M-P-L-E-G-U-I-T-A-R-S. He's very active on there, posting great videos and pictures of his builds. Definitely worth checking out. And as per usual, links to other things we cover in the episode we found on the show notes, which is at theridersblock.co. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Yarsen Vanderwerf. Jay, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hello and thank you for having me. This is uh, this is one that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. Sweet man. Well, quite a few months anyway. <laughs> now, firstly, uh, Jay is short for 
Jassen. Jassen. Yeah, my name's Jassen Matthias van der Werf. What a crazy name. Yeah, I don't expect anyone to engage or remember, you know, remember how to say that. And what nationality is that? Like, where does that come from? Um, I, I was born here in Australia, but born to a Dutch immigrant family. So everybody had all of these very, very Dutch names. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, so three, like, they came here before I was born via Indonesia and then um, we all lived in a big house together, three generations of us in the in the one house, and spoke Dutch at home, and um, kind of slowly assimilated into into Australia. Right. So here I am with a crazy name, and Jay is easier for everyone, I think. Yeah, yeah. And you've you still got family here? Uh, yeah, I've got people sort of all around. Um, but when I was seven, um, my mum and I moved to New Zealand with her new husband and uh so my link with australia got broken quite early and uh, i didn't come back until i was 31 or right. something so australia uh, i don't really fit in here i'm not a typical typical aussie. Ocker. yeah typical aussie. yeah not at all yeah so yeah okay uh well the reason we are here is because you make some uh, some pretty phenomenal in guitars it's true and that was uh <laughs> that was what sort of drew me first to you uh was i think i um i think i saw something on uh on instagram because you're pretty heavy on the uh on the social media um in a good way yeah I like it's what it's what attracted me and i saw these not only these finished guitars but the process of making them mm. um which is something that, like, even myself as a guitarist, haven't been exposed to a lot. I found it like quite interesting. So I really wanted to, uh, and, and I was watching you build this, put together this awesome workshop, which is uh, just outside here in, in your garage. Yep. Um, and it's something that I really wanted to come down and check out. Yeah. Which I had the pleasure of doing um, last month. Last month. Yeah. yeah. Before your first leg of that tour with Area Seven. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Um, so yeah, so I, yeah, I want to know sort of how that all came about, but, um, firstly, I sort of want to go back and, and find out how you got into all this stuff. So, um, you know, let's talk about where you sort of grew up and, and how you first got into music. Okay, cool. So like I said, I, I moved to New Zealand to NZ when I was about seven and, um, my mum introduced me to to music she used to be a radio dj in the 70s awesome so she had this big like big stack of um of old 45s they weren't old then yeah but of old 45s and that was kind of like my my musical education um and at some point in my life i think i was about 13 12 or 13 she had an old guitar in the cupboard and she pulled it out and showed me how to play a couple of songs and uh yeah i was i was already really into the the idea so she gave me that guitar and that was kind of where i started out before i was making guitars for the longest time my love affair with the instrument was based around playing it and that's how you know i made my living most of the time and yeah so started playing guitar around 13 which is when um Eddie Van Halen recorded Beat It with Michael Jackson, so it was mm-hmm. a very good kind of fortuitous time yep. to get into yep. guitar music. 
and uh and also you know like all of my best memories from childhood from early childhood were based around guitar music and and guitar memories like um back in the day oh back in the day <laughs> we had these things called transistor radios which were like the size of kind of like a service station piece of banana cake or something yep. and you'd load up you know batteries in there and i used to tape it to my bicycle handlebars and just ride around and listen to jefferson starship and queen and mm-hmm. zeppelin and like all of these incredible bands that are still incredible still considered to be so pivotal uh, so pivotal in so many people's lives and and uh yeah so i just remember sort of cruising around as a as a kid in the 70s listening to this just incredible music coming through the radio yeah on my bike so so yeah um that was kind of like how how i fell in love with it and i i've got to say that the the bands and the the music that really got got to me then that really you know that i took on board and, and really cared about i still care about now yep. to the same extent so i think i was very lucky being a guitar kind of guy um growing up in that piece of history because growing up now while there's so many different types of sort of guitar music out there and it hasn't died at all mm. but it's very fractured and it's just a different thing whereas everywhere you used to look it was just guitars all day yeah so yeah I'm, i'll always be very grateful for that kind of for that experience yeah awesome hmm. and uh first bands like when, when did you start actually like um you know jamming with mates and that's interesting um so as a or kid, if you did, I just I just presumed. I just presumed you. Yeah, no, you were in a I, band, but I had a kind of really unusual trajectory as a musician, or you know, kind of everything that I ended up doing, I ended up doing in a very kind of circuitous way. So, um, when I was a kid, it, I lived in New Zealand, and where we were, it was a very kind of rough, rough place and mm-hmm. a rough time. Yeah, some of those towns now are kind of like family towns, and it's all good. But back then, it was it was pretty dark, you know. And right. Um, and I was having a really hard time sort of at home. So I ended up, um, kind of falling in with, with the, the bad kids and, okay. and, uh, I was very young, like I say, seven or eight, but I was, I was not, not acting in a, in a matter befitting a young gentleman. And so, um, I, I got locked up a lot. I spent most of my childhood, uh, in and out of youth detention and things like that. And because I was the youngest and also... <laughs> the smallest and probably the widest kid in there um yeah it was it was a bit of a it was a bit of a a a rough time and so because of that my education was next to non-existent I, i failed everything at school and at high school and all of that so when i left high school at maybe 16 i went straight into working and um and the work was was very non-skilled and um and very demanding and so for you know a year or two after that my whole world was just going to the job and kind of trying to be there on time and cope with it and everything um and as a result i didn't go to my first show until i was like 18 something like that i had next to no social life i just yeah I'd just go home and crash and practice finger tapping in my bedroom and you know so there was no kind of 
no social component. So I, I missed out on that, um, on that experience of getting together with the, you know, with friends and, and having jams and, and that kind of, I think that really informs a lot of people's musical education. Um, and it definitely helps you to connect with other musicians. If you're just used to playing by yourself, it's obviously, you're missing out on an opportunity to, to plug into that kind of collective consciousness that musicians share, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I figure it will with yeah, you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I didn't do any, any jamming or anything, sort of any kind of guitar playing I did in public came along much later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So fast forward to sort of 18, mm. uh, 19, school's finished. Mm. Um, where did you go from there? Like, do you have any, like some, some early jobs and well, that first job that I did um, when I left high school, I was working in a cheese factory. Right. And um, we'd make cheese by hand. Okay. Handmade cheeses. And we had all of these crazy kind of customers like King Juan Carlos, who was the previous monarch of Spain, all of this kind of stuff. So it was, it was very good cheese. And uh, I eventually got fired. And the boss called me up into his, um, into his office. He said... Jay, listen, you know, you've got no, what's the word when you, um, when there's things that you should just know as a matter of course, um, and, and you, you know, you don't know them. So I, I was no good. I was basically, I was, I was no good to these people. And, uh, and so he, he fired me and when he fired me, I was, I was devastated because, you know, that's your job and mm. that's kind of. That's all I'd ever known. Um, and But the, the plus side of it was that I ended up getting a fair whack of holiday pay, which I didn't know was a thing. And um, so, yeah, I had, I had this um, pocket full of holiday pay and initiative. I said I liked initiative. And I was like, how the fuck are you meant to have initiative about cheese? You know, can I swear on this podcast? Of course. Fuck yeah. So... so so yeah, you know, I was I was devastated and, and I had all this money in my pocket and I thought, what am I gonna do? And I thought, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go and see Metallica on May first, nineteen eighty nine at the Logan Campbell Center in Auckland for their damage justice tour. And um so for the first time, like I, I lived in the North Island of New Zealand, north of the capital city called Wellington. I lived in a place called Paraparomu. And uh Paraparomu's like an interesting place um, in a lot of ways historically like you get into sport a bit so um, you know everybody knows who the all blacks mm -hmm. are and everything mm -hmm. the chief who basically was the guy that you know started Paraparomu off his name was Taraupuraha and uh, he was this incredible figure in New Zealand you know overcame overwhelming odds and, and all of this kind of stuff but he was the guy that actually wrote the Haka Kamate which is the one that the All Blacks perform yep. and all of that kind of stuff. So it's pretty interesting. I had a, I had a lot of um, kind of Maori culture, Maori tikang and te reo, the, the language. Um, I had a lot of exposure to that when I was in detention with all the Maori kids because it's kind of like how they set them straight, give them some pride in their culture. And it gave me a whole lot of pride in their culture as mm -hmm. well. So, so yeah, that, that was pretty cool. And... Um, yeah, so I was in the uh, the cheese factory. I got my I got my holiday pay. 
went down to Wellington, which is an hour south of Paraparomu. And um, I went into this music store back when music stores are, you know, like music record store, not a musical instrument store, back when everything was vinyl. And they had CDs because CDs were new back then and definitely cassettes. But... um. But yeah, it was it was all about the vinyl. And I walked in and there was this dude with long hair behind the counter. And I thought, oh, this is all right. You know, this yeah. isn't what I was expecting. And I bought a Slayer T-shirt so that I could wear it at the Metallica show. And uh, the guy that sold it to me was John from She Had. And uh, we got talking because we both liked the same T-shirt. And uh, so, you know, I'd walked in there, bought a T-shirt. And five minutes later, he'd offered me a job for when Metallica was over. So... You know, I was very upset about losing my Cheese Factory gig and suddenly I was going to be working in a record store. So yeah, I was, that. that was very nice That's of awesome. him. Yeah, it was, it was a really cool kind of like, again, just a fortuitous situation that I, that I fell into. Yeah. So um, this is, this is uh, you know, quite a cool story, I think. I, um, I went up to Auckland to see Metallica and obviously it blew my world apart. But um, what happened was... I was moshing at the front for like the first hour or so and then I got super hot to the point where it was just dangerous mm-hmm. and I thought I got to go to the bathrooms and get some water in and on me. So I did that and as I came back in I kind of looked at the crowd and of course, you know, this was the first time Metallica had ever played in New Zealand. And so everybody was going off and it was a very intense mosh and I just thought I don't really want to get back into that right now, you know. I'm I feel a bit like I've done my dash. And I looked down the wall of the venue, the left-hand wall, and the PA didn't go all the way to the wall. There was a gap. And I thought, I wonder what's in there. So super skinny dude, and I slipped down through the gap. And there was a, um, a pallet up against the side of the stage. And I used it as a ladder because the stage was was quite tall. It was quite like head height or something. So I came up the um, pallet. And suddenly my head was in guitar world. So there's uh, and a, it was Andy, the, the guitar tech for Metallica at that time. Um, and he's working away on, you know, one of James's guitars. And I could see the band on stage from side of stage. And I was just like, this is insane. This is so cool. But at the same time, I had this impending sense of danger. Like, I'm so fucked. Yep. If anybody catches me, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it was. It was Andy Batai. And uh, who was the tech? Anyway, James is playing away and he snapped an A string and he came stomping around into guitar world, which for the uninitiated is where guitar techs set up and they have all of their gear. And in um, Andy's case, he would trigger effects and, and do all kinds of things like that. So a lot of the time when you go see an artist that you, that you like, sometimes... Um, signal processing is taken care of by automation and sometimes it's taken care of by a human and it's not often taken care of by an artist even even then even back in those days yeah it's crazy that's only something that i was exposed to when when we were touring a lot with bigger bands and and i saw that for the first time like that's crazy here i am like fucking around like with all my tap blanky yeah feet tap dancing on stage and uh, i don't need to be i can have someone do that for me um north lane mm-hmm. they've got an insane amount of signal processing yeah. and you know the incredible band and incredible 
technical stuff. So yeah. for yourself and for the listeners, if you've got to spare, you know, like three quarters of an hour and you want to get your mind blown, go on YouTube and, and search out their sort of behind the scenes gig rundown. Yeah, right. I don't even, I don't even know if it's real. Like, yeah. I don't know if they kind of just made it up and made it sound convincing because mm-hmm. it's just so overly convoluted. I just can't, I can't yeah. get my head around it. But anyway, so there's James Hetfield walking straight towards me looks me in the eye and i thought i am dead because he was in full and justice for all you know and he sees me rips the string off his guitar throws his guitar at andy walks up to me gives me the string and i'm like fuck yeah like this is insane this is amazing and then he turned around and he went up to a big bucket where they had um all of his green metallica tortex picks that he mm-hmm. used to use and he scooped up a big handful of them and then he came back and gave me all of those and it was like i think he was just he knew i didn't yeah. wasn't meant to be mm-hmm. there i was mm-hmm. a grommet you know so wide-eyed and just like what but yeah he just kind of scanned me and went hell yeah this is cool you know let's awesome. give this guy something to remember how good's that it was so good so that was kind of like my first initiation into behind the curtain of, of what happens and it, and it blew my mind and uh yeah afterwards i went out into the car park and i kept the one of the picks and the string and i sold all the other picks for like ten dollars <laughs> each in the car brilliant. park brilliant so so that was that was pretty good anyway then i went back to the that vinyl record store yep and i worked there for about a year and there was an instrument store next door and uh, I'd go and hang out there on my lunch break, breaks and I'd play metal and annoy them all, you know, like that scene in Wayne's World where it's like no stairway and I'd always be playing, you know, Metallica and Slayer yeah. stuff and what have you. So they hated me. Um, and then one day they were shooting one of New Zealand's kind of major music shows. It's always funny saying that, like, one of New Zealand's major music shows, mm-hmm. like, it's the most popular pie stand in Vanuatu. Like, it's just, it's an island, yeah. you know, it's islands. But... Um, Nevertheless, that's what happened. And it was my world. So it seemed quite big at the time. There was this dude, very cool dude. He was like the Andrew G, the Osher Ginsberg of New Zealand. His name was Robbie Rakete. And he was playing some slap bass. And uh, I was in there when they came in playing, you know, jamming out. And he said to me, would you maybe accompany me? I'll play something, you you play along on the guitar for the segment. And it was going to be on this national tv show and i was like oh i was you know freaking out i did it and uh doing it was a very very good idea because one of the producers of the show um produced a lot of other content on uh on new zealand terrestrial tv back before netflix and Mm -hmm. all of that and he said um hey listen i need somebody to record uh incidental music for shows i do would you be interested? And I was like, I would absolutely be interested. But the thing is, and this happened again and again in my life, where people will say, can you do this for me? And I go, of course. And they'll go, great, and go away. And then I'll think, how am I going to pull this off? You know, yeah. And it's, it's like what we were talking about before with your plans for the writer's block and its physical location and all the services, mm-hmm. the very varied services that it's meant to provide. You know, right now you've got no idea how you're going to pull it off right correct but we both know it's happening yeah it's gonna happen Mm -hmm. you know so yeah it was a situation like that where suddenly i was going to be doing music for you know new zealand tv and i had no idea how to do it but i pulled it off and it it was fine so if you're listening and you 
were in New Zealand in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, you've definitely heard me swanging away in the past. So, so yeah, that was, that was kind of like, um, it was amazing money, but it wasn't a regular paycheck. Right. Um, and at that time, pre-internet days, I uh, started playing in a pop band. I got headhunted to be in this pop band um, called The Spirals and we were signed to BMG. So nowadays, like BMG isn't even a record company mm. anymore. But back in the day, it was one of the major labels yeah. before. I think it probably got like absorbed into Universal or something like that. Um, and so we recorded this big budget single with the guy who was the producer of the year for X amount of years and the best studio and all this kind of stuff. Read, we went into massive amounts of debt to record this signal a uh, single that never went anywhere like you know that's rock and roll right mm. so as bad as that was it was also a really great education because you know when we all start out we're all naive and wide-eyed and optimistic we think oh wow you know a record label and it's the worst thing sometimes yeah it, it can be the worst thing so after that um, I, I left that band after about a year because I was just too into metal. And mm -hmm. um, and I ran into this guy. I'd met him a few times. He, he owned a PA hire company. So they'd hire out PA rigs, provide tech support, um, do live mixing, and he had a recording studio across the street as well. And I asked him, do you have any jobs? And he said, no. He already had a bunch of staff. But I felt really strongly that that place would be a really great foot in the door in the industry for me like the mail room that mail room yep. stereotype so he was like really highly integrated within the the music industry you know within the scene over there so i thought about what i was going to do and i quit my job and uh, i went on the dole and i turned up on his doorstep and i said listen i'll work for you for free for a year because you know i was funded by the government mm -hmm. um if you give me every bit of knowledge and experience that you've got, give me access to the people that I need to meet, take me everywhere. I want to be your personal assistant. And that time he said, yes, that's awesome. So it was brutal. He used me like a little bitch. You know? um, but the upside was he had that recording studio. So I got him to teach me how to use it. And then I would go in just by myself and record guitar, bass, drums and whatever for the tv shows that i was doing and uh you know so they were just like things like comedy shows and what have you so you'd it, it was good because sometimes you'd have to literally play country and western because that's what they want yeah and sometimes they want death metal or whatever which was clearly the best times um so yeah i did that i lugged his pa systems up like 20 billion flights of stairs and went to a million lunches and got to see how it all works you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. um Sort of half of rock and roll or music is is who you know, and the other half is being in the right place at the right time. I think absolutely. So, um, so yeah, I formed a lot of relationships, and that was cool. And this is, I know, this is something that you wanted to ask me about. So I'll I'll tell you. Uh, one day I was in this place. It was called Sound Co. And uh, I was just doing some cleaning. And the phone rang and so I picked up the phone and it was this gentleman called Dennis Sheehan who's no longer with us, but he was the road manager for U2. Right. From way in the early days mm -hmm. till you know, later on. And they were doing their Love Town tour with B.B. King at the time. 
And uh, Dennis said he needed someone to retube and rebias two Vox AC30s and two Fender Twins. So obviously, um, and, and, and so two of them were Edges amps and two of them were BBs. And um, I said, I'm sorry, you know, Mr. Sheehan, um, all of the techs are out on jobs right now. There's no one here to do it. And he, uh, he threatened me with physical violence unless I turned up at the stadium immediately and, and did the work. Really? And uh, I liked to style, so <laughs> I did it. Awesome. Yeah. And um, so I arrived at the venue and I went up on the stage. And Metallica was one thing because it was like, <clears throat> I'd say the kind of correlate, the best correlation would be like festival hall kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Just a big room. That was what Metallica was doing. And you two were in a sports stadium. Yeah. And so when you come up the ramp, you know this feeling. When you come up the ramp and you look across the stage and you just see an ocean of seating and standing room and it's just like wow yeah you know it's mind-blowing nothing can prepare you for that uh the scale of like a legit stadium show and of course being you two it was bigger than anything that ever came before they had two pa systems so if one pa system went down for even a fraction of a second the second pa system which was behind it would kick in and it was um amped and EQ'd to play right through the PA system in front of it with no discernible loss of sound quality. Wow. So that's kind of like you two are really serious about their live shows, even then. Um, and the other thing that really struck me about that that gig was on the wall of Guitar World, um, they had all these full-size synthesizers. So back then, modular synths weren't a thing yet. They didn't really exist. And uh, so you two would have, they had a lot of like keyboard intros and, and things like that. And so they'd have the keyboards that they needed to get those sounds mounted on a rack on the wall. And they'd also have a backup for every single one of them. And all of it was wired together with this archaic kind of collection of MIDI cables that, you know, now we look back at it and just think, well, you know, what's that? The USB didn't exist, nothing like that. But back then it was like the cat's pajamas. So I yep. walked in and I thought I was seeing like, you know, the wiring of God, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that, that was really amazing because it's just not something that as a punter, you really think about, you don't think where are those keyboards coming no, from? You're just rocking out, you know? And, um, and the edge being the edge bought 50 guitars on the road with him seriously and he always does so it was just his poor tech was just buried under this mountain of work so uh very long story short um their tech whose name is dallas shoe he had a viral viral flu and he just needed help because you know when you're shivering and sweating all at once you know Mm. it's not the best time to be doing like a major major show so i came in um, rebiased the amps, got got them all going, and I rolled them back on stage. And I asked Dallas where he wanted them, and uh, he handed me that iconic nineteen seventy six Karina Wood Explorer of the Edges that he's had from the beginning. He sold it now; he sold it for hundreds of thousands of dollars because really? he owned it, right? Yeah. But he handed me that, and uh, he just said, "Test them out." And I thought, "All right, you know, I'll do it." So I plugged them in, and uh, I started playing the intro to "Where the Streets Have No Name" because it's like the only U2 riff that I know and it's cool and, you know, it's fun to play. And um, I was coming out of the monitors really, really loud and that kind of caught me by surprise and also because I was trying to listen to the amps. So I had my head down next to the amps and, you know, just made sure everything was working as it should. And then when I finished, the delay chain eventually 
finished and um, I heard this huge cheer from outside the gates of the of the venue and uh, all the stupid morons out there thought that the band were sound bad. checking. Brilliant. So I was like, I felt I was flushed with yeah. power, you know, but really it was just, I was an imposter, but that was, that was very That's cool. Amazing. So technically that was my first um, tech job. Yep. And once word got around about that, after that, the phone just kept ringing for about a decade. So. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Who was that? Yeah, that was, like I say, just fortuitous, landed in it, right place, right time. And, yep. you know, if I didn't know how to how to get an app going, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be sitting here with yeah. you now. You yeah. know, I'd be cleaning toilets somewhere mm-hmm. or something like that. So, um, but I mean, it wasn't all, like, this is the thing, you know, there are people who, they have one of those moments and suddenly there's no turning back and they're off. Uh, like you probably, do you know MJ Travers? Yeah. So yeah. from back in the MySpace days yeah, and things. Yeah. And, you know, she got that job as PA, uh, as PA for Pink. And, you know, after doing probably merch and everything for everybody in Australia. And she worked her way up. She, she paid her dues. And she got that job. And now she's always going to be fine for the rest of her life. Mm. She's good, you know. Yeah. And that wasn't what it was like for me. So I did that. And I was doing tech um jobs and i'll sort of go into more detail about that if you like but um at the same time it wasn't regular nothing was regular and new zealand's a tiny place yeah so it gets lots of big tours and lots of music you know how many sort of amazing bands or artists do you know that are from new zealand there's a lot you know um but i needed to make money so i just went into uh, i was a bouncer and uh <laughs> And that's funny because, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a pretty sensitive kind of cat and uh, I've changed a lot over the years. But back then I was in my, let's say, my New Zealand mindset. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a bit kind of confusing because when I got to Australia, like Australians are really cheeky and they'll say things they don't necessarily mean. Whereas in New Zealand, we have this thing called mana. Right. And you don't do that. Yep. You know, you don't say something unless you're ready to punch on or, mm-hmm. or what have you so i came over here and i was trem- you know eventually years later i came over here i was tremendously confused because people would say oh nice tats dickhead and then there'd be a fight and they'd be going i don't understand what's going on yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. friends would say to me you gotta calm down like you can't do this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the guy didn't do anything wrong and i was like do anything wrong he questioned you know yeah, yeah. it's just ridiculous so uh so that's what i did i was i was being a bouncer and um i worked around about the same time peter jackson started doing international movies in new zealand mm-hmm. and new zealand like that wellywood phenomenon started to sort of happen and so as a result I, I was doing the door at this place that was set up specifically for a-listers only tremendously wanky and uh but also awesome because just about nobody wanted to you know cause a ruckus so it was like it was a nice chill yep. sort of job and I, I definitely definitely was happy about that for a change um but through that place i ended up looking after elijah wood and, and Liv tyler for a little while um which is again another thing that when you're just some small town dude in new zealand that's not something you'd ever think was was going to be sort of uh in your future yeah um and so yeah, it was kind of like a mix between dead-end bouncer stuff or bodyguard stuff before all of the regulations kind of came in um, or um, teching. 
and a lot of bands that had no right to want a tech really needed to have a tech mm-hmm. you know it was kind of like a status symbol right i guess and so i got a lot of work through that but i also just fell in love with it and i you know i loved being on the road and the family kind of vibe that that comes up and uh and you know also getting heartbroken by when we all break up at the end of tour mm-hmm. and you know mm-hmm. i love it that you know that you yeah, can identify exactly with what you're this talking about yeah because you've played so mm-hmm. many hundreds of shows mm-hmm. and with all of these people but um yeah so I got to the point with teching where I'd kind of go, hey, man, who's looking after you on this tour I hear you're doing? And people would be like, oh, we can't afford anybody. We don't have anybody. And so I'd just go on tour with them and fund it myself just because I, I love doing it. Yeah. And um, after a while of that, I was just everywhere all the time. And that was kind of funny. There wasn't a lot of international stuff happening at first, but it did eventually start to happen. And it'd be hilarious because say I'd walk in, I'd see you at Rod Laver Arena. I'd be like, G'day, Hez. What's going on? You feeling good? And it's like, yeah. It's like, okay, got to, got to rack off now. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, cool. And then you go to the next place, which might be Hong Kong, Singapore or something. And you're sitting out the back, you know, just warming up, getting ready to go on. And then I'll walk in and I'd just be like, hey, have you got that five bucks you owe me? Like it's just suddenly <laughs> yeah. you're just everywhere. Yeah, and yeah. It, was really, it was really trippy kind of. I loved it. Mm-hmm. loved traveling and I, and I loved all of that kind of yeah. stuff. So um, because of the profile and contacts I made through U2, I got on tours with Metallica, Bon Jovi, Blink-182, Hilary Duff, Britney Spears, Avril Lavigne, Akadaka, like everybody that was on the road at that time. Uh, clearly, I couldn't do everybody, yeah, yeah. but I kind of made my choices. And um, Hilary so, Duff was an interesting one because, you know, I'm doing all of the guitar bands mm-hmm. and then it's like a little Disney pop princess. Yep, yep. <clears throat> but again, great experience and lovely people, which I think, you know, y- you will know that when you meet celebrities, it's quite disarming until you get used to it, that they're usually the nicest people in the world and the most genuine people in the world. And you could go to a party in, you know, in Fitzroy and sit in the corner and everybody just ignore you. But when you're around celebrities, they just want to be your best friend and they mean it. And I don't know, it's yeah. something about them. that they're, they're just super cool people generally most of the generally, time. Yeah. So, um, so you did that. Uh, I toured with Metallica twice on two different tours. And it was so cool remembering back in 89 when I was peering between the road cases. And then years later, I was like napping in them <laughs> yeah yep. you know I, I, i'll probably like i don't need the work anymore so mm-hmm. i can be honest about the things that went on yeah yeah but um <laughs> when especially with metallica when the band were playing i'd go into their dressing room mm-hmm. and i'd eat all of their food brilliant and uh like just to put it in perspective like people out there might think oh that's a bit rude you know they're playing and they want to come in and they want to eat that whatever but they'd order from 15 or 20 different menus five or ten different dishes from each place and so you'd walk in and just be like a tsunami of food and these guys especially kirk he's like a he eats like a bird so just kind of walk in and pick at this and you know grab yep. a bit of that and so when they go on stage you could hit it as hard as you wanted mm-hmm. and no one would would ever notice yeah so yeah got really fat on that not really but you know put on a few kilos yeah definitely put on 35 kilos or so on on each metallica <laughs> tour um but yeah, it just blew me away, like just that perspective of if they wanted a live giraffe delivered in there that afternoon, they'd just have it. Yeah. Because their level of power and influence and money was just astronomical. So um, 
After a while, my main bread and butter while I was still in New Zealand, because clearly we're in Australia now. This isn't brought to you live from Aotearoa. Mm-hmm. Um, my main bread and butter was a New Zealand-fronted, uh, female-fronted rock band, rock pop band called Fur Patrol. And they, they've sort of uh, evaporated now as far as Australia is concerned. When they got here, the word from the record companies was, eh, we've already got a super Jesus, which is insulting because they were, they were different and yeah. there's room for all kinds of stuff, of right? But um, they're on the radio like everywhere in the late 90s there winning all the big awards and, and constantly rotating, you know, highly on commercial radio. And uh, they also did a lot of TV shows. So that gave me a peek behind that curtain and get an insight into how all of that works because it's, it's a whole other world. And uh, that served me sort of really well later on in life when I started doing TV appearances and things like that. So I did a couple of years with them. And I eventually reached a point where I just kind of, fulfilled all of my fur patrol related dreams and uh, decided to go my own my own way and it wasn't that I had anything against them or that I hated them because it wasn't like that at all and to be honest I was really super grateful to have been a part of their ascension and to experience so many firsts with them Mm -hmm. like you know you're a band guy so when you would get the news that you're supporting bullet for my valentine the second time or what have you it's like yeah this is awesome this is happening to me but the people you know, your sound engineer or, you know, your crew, they got to experience it all with you and would be very, very happy for you and all of that. And so it's 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 a beautiful kind of feeling yeah. and it it deepens the feeling of family. Um, so I haven't talked to those guys in like 18 years or something. Right. And I might never speak to them again for the rest of my life, but I'll always love them, always be super grateful. So, so yeah, that's that's rock and roll. And that's kind of how I filled my time. That's how I met your mum. Um, in New Zealand mm. That's crazy Yeah Wow Yeah it, it, it None of it was kind of like World changing All consumingly big And you know Super successful or anything But it It all gave me Kind of a set of tools That when I came here And started to and, and also overseas Sort of internationally More regularly It gave me the tools That I needed To not freak out And just do what needed to be done in whatever role I was performing at the time, if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, like if I just had a fallen straight into like, you know, one of the things where, like New Zealand was kind of typified by, even though I was in that band and we were signed and, you know, there was all of that and it was exciting for a while, um, most of my life was as a supporting role and uh, I wasn't sort of in the spotlight myself. Mm-hmm. And then once I got to Australia, I started kind of being in the spotlight more myself and uh all of that kind of like all of those shit jobs kind of prepared me for for when i landed over here and yeah. started doing bigger things so yeah very cool hmm. so you had a a business ah, yeah where does that sort of slot in this is this is pre pre-temple yeah it was a complete accident um, the business was called Mix Lab, which is just kind of like such an unimaginative generic name. But what happened was I was hanging out with and living with a bunch of drum and bass DJs at the time, mm-hmm. which gives you an idea of the time period. Yep. And I noticed that they were too broke to afford gear of their own. Some of them clearly had it, but most of them didn't because they had to spend like literally every cent that they had on records yeah. and drugs 
but and, mostly and this, records. <laughs> this was back in New Zealand, wasn't it? Yeah, this yeah. was still in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, they clearly had to do a lot of drugs for research purposes and mm-hmm. things like that. Of course. It was important. So, um, and, and I was just thinking, we've got rehearsal rooms for bands and for theatre people and stuff. Why don't DJs have rehearsal rooms? And once I thought of it, it just seemed like the most obvious thing. Um, what bedrooms are for? Well, it, it wasn't like here in, in Melbourne, we've got Revolver and, and the Bakehouse and these institutions. And if you're a DJ and you're motivated, you could just go and hire a room there and, you know, or, or, or you could go to wherever and hire your DJ gear. And, you know, it's possible if you want. Yeah. Um, but there just wasn't anything like that in New Zealand. Um at that time or nothing that I knew about. So yeah, I just thought why not put something together for these guys, uh, kind of like a necessity is the mother of invention type dealio. And, uh, at the time I was in another band that had, um, quite a bit of buzz around it. The buzz never eventuated out into anything, but it seemed like every day it was like, Oh my God, you know, this, influential person or that person said this or we're going to fly you to new york next week and you know like nothing ever kind of happened you're nodding you know what i'm saying it's just the usual music industry bs Mm -hmm. um but it could have been something but it couldn't Mm -hmm. but the upside to it was um the bands are relevant like you know but the upside to it was that we had a manager and he was another guy that was like highly integrated into music planet and he was you know how all of the kind of like the most successful managers in music that you meet, they're just kind of like a little bit sleazy. They're very much a boys club, mm-hmm. you know, they're yep. just men, Yep. you know, yeah, and they exactly like beer and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. So he was, he was kind of like that. He was just super social and, and, and had all these contacts and experience. And I said to him, here's my idea. I need a mentor. And I thought maybe he could put me in touch with someone. He said, Sure, I'll do it. And I thought, well, that, that was easy. Very easy. You know, thanks very much. Um, so what he said was, I'll work for you just like I do with the band. Um, if we sell something, if we make something, I get a percentage of the profits and the percentage is going to be 30%, which was more than a management, standard management fee. And this was before 360 deals and all that kind of stuff yeah. came out. So, um but he said he, he, he laid down his terms and I accepted them because I was a moron that didn't know anything and, and he knew everything. Um, and so, yeah, the next day he called me into his office and he said, okay, so here's what we got. We've got uh, sponsorship for all the turntables, the mixers, the computers, all of the peripherals. Da, 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 da. He even got like um, sofas in from furniture companies, like everything was sponsored every single thing so i didn't have to spend one cent and um he'd found a a commercial premises that used to be an internet company and they'd left but their i can't remember what you call it but um kind of like the interior design of businesses like their fit out Mm -hmm. it was just perfect yep for what we wanted so again didn't have to do anything and he got the first month of rent free because he said to the um real estate people hey listen we're gonna have to fit this thing out so we didn't do shit so we were just in there and and operating and the thing kind of grew wings and took off by itself so it was just it was just really lucky yeah and i mean i guess i kind of knew new zealand being the tiny place that it was 
I kind of knew everybody that could possibly want to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the best thing about it was that uh, that was the Wellington location and then these guys kind of would go on tour or hang out with their friends in other cities and then demand popped up for more sort of, not franchises, but more locations. Yep. So we opened up two more locations of that. And, um, you know, all, all literally all I had to do was plug everything in and hire a receptionist who was there to kind of like go in and clean up in between sessions, make sure everything was still there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yep. you know, the DJs yep. didn't nick off with the carts yep. and things. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it just took on a, a life of its own. And after a while of that, not very long, actually, just a few months, the uh, manager, Alan, said, hey, listen, here's, here's what's happening. You can, you can continue working, doing this thing, and get X amount of money over this much time, or we can sell everything tomorrow as an ongoing concern, like sell the business and you're going to make Y money. And Y money is infinitely bigger than X money and you don't have to do anything anymore. So I just said, sell it, Yeah. you know? Um, and so he sold it and we made out like bandits and it wasn't quite like Bitcoin money or anything, yep, yep, yep. but um, yeah, we, we did, we did really well out of it. And um, I don't know how we did so well because Wellington only had 120,000 people in it, which is, a, a regional town kind of deal hmm. but um i guess at that time djing was just super hot and everybody wanted to be in the chemical brothers and stuff yeah. like that so there was a lot of heat surrounding it yep. so so yeah cashed out and i moved to melbourne right and is that the beginning of temple no no nothing's ever simple no um so again i'm sure you can relate really well but uh, I met a bunch of Aussie bands when I was doing the big day out tours back in like the very early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And I made some pretty amazing friendships that just happened instantly. Yep. And suddenly we were just all up in each other's lives and mm-hmm. very cool, you know, just really, really cool. And uh, once that tour was over, I just thought it would make good sense to go to where the scene was. New Zealand is really, and always has been, really hot for music, but the kind of music that was doing really well or starting to emerge was like Fat Freddy's Drop and, you know, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. But it's also, I don't happen to be in that band and they don't need my services kind of thing. Whereas by um, contrast here in, in, uh, in Melbourne, you had, you know, eventually, you know, you had Jet and you just, you just had so many bands that were playing guitar and it was a huge peak of, of guitar music to the point where Melbourne had a scene that kind of people would talk about internationally, you know, like people talk about the Seattle scene or the LA hair metal scene. And there was this Melbourne rock and roll scene. And so I thought it just makes sense. Right. Um, And at the same time, New Zealand was really great to me and I'd kind of forged a lot of relationships and I had it very easy there. Kind of my entire life was, was subsidized and I didn't really have to pay for anything and it was it was cool in retrospect but I was a very big fish in a very small pond and I wanted to know what it would be like to be a very small fish in a big pond um so I you know I wanted to break out of my comfort zone which is a thing that you I know talk about through your insta posts and things like that with the writer's block so I, I moved to Australia pretty much overnight had these new friends, had this new kind of mental attitude and had enough of New Zealand. 
in certain ways it's always going to be precious and everything but you know like you'd tour overseas and you'd come home and the place was just empty yeah it was it was just very weird and um at the time i lived in this huge warehouse that was full of carnival floats Mm -hmm. um with all these people who were actors and musicians and i was the only person in the place that wasn't a celebrity um and as fun as that might sound to be surrounded by all these people with all this juju you know um, I just wanted to sort of go live by myself and, and not know anyone and start again. And so, yeah, I kind of had a, if you will, a personal revolution and just thought Melbourne seems to be, you know, the place where, where that that should happen. The irony was that once I came to um, Melbourne, I lived in North Melbourne. And once I got my place there, over the next few years, half of New Zealand came through it anyway, <laughs> so I may as well have just stayed where I was. But... Um, yeah, I came to Melbourne, uh, 2001, and on I think it was 2001. And on my first day here, I worked for Bon Jovi at Etihad. But the thing was, I wasn't a tech. I was just doing local crew, and so we were lugging like road cases and steel lighting trusses until eight o'clock the next morning. Yeah, and uh, it was just to put it in perspective. Like there's a big Samoan guy that was working alongside, and we were both carrying the same stuff and everything. And by about six or seven, you know, I could see he was either sweating from his eyes or he was crying. And mm-hmm. I said, bro, are you okay? And he said, fuck this, you know, yeah. fuck this shit. <laughs> and, uh, and I could relate. I could yeah. completely relate. And I was glad that it was just like, thank God it's not just me. Yeah, yeah, you know, this yeah. beast of a dude is yeah. suffering. Like I legitimately have a reason to feel bad. Mm. So it sucked so bad. And I was convinced I'd made the worst mistake of my life. Because I was just, like I say, New Zealand was such a comfort zone. Yeah. Um, but I hung in there and I eventually sort of re-engaged with contacts that I made. A lot of the time, and again, you'll you'll relate to this, a lot of the time in music world, it's not a case of just ringing people up. You kind of have to wait until you're in the same room, until fate brings you back together before you talk about yeah. jobs or opportunities. It's just rude. Yeah. Yeah. Hey bro, what's up? What can you do for me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want yeah. to be that guy. So it took a little while, but eventually um, I got to tour with all these cool Aussie bands that I used to hear on the radio back in New Zealand. So for example, there were people like Johnny Diesel and Missy Higgins and the Beasts of Bourbon. Gives you an idea of like the time period. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did a lot of smaller indies like Scream Feeder and Sekadin, who mm-hmm. were both Brisbane bands and lovely people, wall to wall, the loveliest people in Australia. And I did newer bands like Motor Ace and Klinger. Motor Ace are a pack of wankers. Uh, no, nah, there's a couple of good guys in there. <laughs> Klinger are just golden. Like, yeah, yeah. Being on tour with them was like touring with the comedy company or yeah, something. Yeah, such a good band. And yeah, really great. So hi, Ben, if you're listening. They, they were really awesome. And, and um, I hooked up with Killing Heidi, who were the people that... Um, when I was doing the big day out, they were kind of like the people that I connected with and, and, and made friends with because they are the nicest people in the world, yeah. you know, and uh, and the most welcoming, you know, mm-hmm. small town kind of people. And uh, so they took me on a tour and it was awesome because I never did any work. I just hung out with them and then they'd say, oh, we've got to go play now. And then they go play on stage and then come off stage and we just hang out. And I got paid full rate Perfect. for this tour. So, so that, was re- that was really nice. But as you know when you get to know bands you get to know their people Mm -hmm. 
all of the support networks and you know managements techs and 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 pr people and all of the kind of different variations of humans that they've got going on and uh so through the killing heidi guys i met this amazing lady i'm not sure if you know her uh her name's nikki jones and she was the studio manager at metropolis in south melbourne back when that was still open so for the listeners metropolis was what they call a hit factory and uh, a lot of the songs that people in australia um are very familiar with they were recorded in there the most famous one that i can think of off the top of my head is that song shut up your face <laughs> yeah that's a really sort of big bit of australiana but yeah so that was uh that was metrop and um and she got on the phone to a gentleman called Paul Freeman, who was the uh, one of the A and R guys, or no, sorry, he was artist relations, which is slightly different, uh, sort of like A and R Mark II mm-hmm. for Sony right. here in Australia. And uh, I got hired as a session guitarist and um, and played. So I wasn't doing music for TV shows in a, in a recording studio by myself. I was uh, playing guitar for artists who were coming into australia or who are already here who didn't have a band um so yeah that's pretty much it so i did a run playing guitar for that american singer anastasia when she was Mm -hmm. out um and i did a lot of sessions with artists on shows here in australia like the footy show the logies and the arias and kind of all the big tv events simulcast Mm kind of you know things so there are a lot of session players out there, but for a minute I was the designated rock guy, inverted commas, you yep. know. Um, and so there are kind of, there, there are videos on YouTube that other people have put up of some of those shows. And I, I kind of cringe a bit because it was back then, but I'm still, on the other hand, I'm still kind of like very proud and happy that it, you know, that it all happened. Um, so yeah, I was working for Sony, which was mind blowing. Um, and no record contract because I wasn't the talent. So that's awesome. And then I got hired by Michael Parisi, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Parisi Management, who, you know, if you don't know Michael, he's he's like one of the biggest OG heavyweights in Australian sort of music history. And he just knows his way around all of it and everyone. And he, if he wants something to happen, it happens. Yeah, He's such a... He's such an amazing negotiator, such a such a cool cat, mm-hmm. like such a deeply cool cat. And uh, yeah, it was it's crazy because I was um, sessioning for his unsigned talent when they were showcasing with all of the major labels. So you'd have the head of Universal Worldwide fly into Sydney and some girl from Werribee would go and sing her heart out because mm-hmm. Michael saw something in her that was legit, you know, that was yeah. really there. And um, so I was, I was kind of like... Uh, uh, the guy that would accompany accompany them and i remember there was one time with an artist called katarina torres who's just like this monster singer like monster voice this latina um artist and uh i can't remember the exact number but it was in the 10 like millions and millions of dollars like maybe 18 million dollars or something and the head of i think it was universal and please forgive me if i'm not getting everybody just right because it was all a bit of a a bit of a blur at that point but um he said to michael after the performance we you know the artist had just finished singing i just finished playing guitar we're both probably a bit nervous i know i was probably more than she was because she was so good and so the head of the record company says 18 million dollars three years you know like th- these are the terms yeah 
And Michael just sort of leans back in his chair and goes, yeah, you know, call me. <laughs> like crazy. You know, if somebody yeah. said, hey, I'll give you $18 million for the next three years of your life. You'd just be like, where's the pen, mm-hmm. motherfucker? Mm-hmm. Like, let's do this. And yeah, he's just one cool cat. So he gave me a lot of, uh, again, a lot more insights and some money. Thanks, Michael, and all of that kind of stuff. Awesome. Um, and then, yeah, on top of that, I, I, it was kind of like my session period. So on top of that, um, I also did a lot of international tours for bands just as a straight up session guy if they needed a guitar. Exactly what you're doing with Area 7. Yeah. You know, except in my case, I didn't have relationships with these people to begin with. Mm-hmm. And that was weird because uh, when people think about touring they think about brixton academy and they think about you know like all the names all of the name venues um we didn't play many of those we did play some of them um but a lot of the places we went to were like um like bratislava istanbul bucharest Mm -hmm. like who do you know that's ever said yeah we're touring to turkey and it's awesome and people there love music and, and it was it was cool so again just really amazing um amazing experiences that that came out of seemingly nowhere just you know i practiced finger tapping in my room after the cheese factory and Mm -hmm. fast forward a few years and here we are in eastern europe you know looking at a girl making out with her dog on the dance floor like you see some things over there i tell you what (laughs) i don't even want to it was awesome anymore about that (laughs) it was it was one of the best moments (laughs) no it was just one of those things where um you remember the mavises Yes. So Becky mm-hmm. and um, Nick from the Mavises were, were on that tour. Right. Okay. Um, they, they played some shows recently. Yeah. They're so. still kicking around that, um, playing as Becky and the Bullets yep. at that point. Mm-hmm. And so just this incredibly fun, energetic live band from these people who um, had paid their dues and knew their way around. So there was just... I don't know when you think about bands like maybe Transvision Vamp and things like that. Mm-hmm. This is going back a million years. Sorry if you're like you know under fifty, <laughs> but um, Transvision Vamp worked because they they just had uh, you know they were selling saccharine kind of pop music, but they had a self assuredness from experience, and that's the thing about Becky and the Bullets. If like some eighteen year olds tried to pull that off, it'd just be bullshit, you know. Yeah. Um, not making any comment on the songs or anything it's just the delivery thereof um but in their case they were just they'd been around the block so many times it was just effortless and really enjoyable so yeah they were there on that tour Mm -hmm. and they'll they they i'm not sure if they saw the girl making out with the dog in prague but yeah everybody definitely talked about it so it's just one of those millions and millions of tour stories that we all accumulate over time so yeah, that's that's sessioning. That's kind of like the full scope of it. Mm-hmm. I stopped doing it uh, maybe 2010, 2011. So it's quite a long time ago now. Um, but that was my experience doing that. And that sort of led me um, a step closer to Temple and my first build. Right. Mm. So what did you do after, after sessioning? Like when you, when, you decide, when you decided to call it quits? Um, that, that's, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, because I, you know, as I've just sort of talked about, I was, I was all up in music world Mm -hmm. and everything I was doing was kind of, was related very directly to music. And, uh, this was before I started, um, 
like the sessioning and all of that kind of stuff we we kind of skipped over a bit but as you know i worked at cole clark yeah. when they were sort of in their setup phase of operations and and that all happened sort of before the sessions but after the sessions um i'd turned 40 and the phone stopped ringing mm-hmm. and that's normal but it kind of left me with my pants down sort of metaphorically speaking and and i wasn't sure kind of what to do and it got a bit tense because i was so used to just everybody not everybody but you know being in demand for my services and Mm. being able to pay the rent things like that um and so i took a really big sideways step which you know which you know about where um i became a private security contractor and it's not like i immediately decided this is what i'm going to do um back in new zealand when i was being a bouncer and everything i kind of started doing that right the game had changed and in Australia um, all of a sudden you had to have 50 million qualifications and all of these certification and everything which is good for everyone they they shook up the security industry and it's still nowhere near as good as it could be but it was better than the wild wild west days so uh, I got all of my kind of base level security qualifications and licenses like um, you know, armed guard, cash in transit. I, I got a proper qualification in bodyguard work, all, all of that stuff. And at the same time, I threw myself into things like tactical Krav Maga. I was doing like at least 14 classes a week, which is brutal because it, um, it breaks you. <laughs> it's very difficult. And also uh, doing ISR Matrix, which is like a law enforcement focused kind of self-defense system whose main objective is to sort of isolate stabilize and resolve situations which is where the isr comes from so mm-hmm. you'd get someone who's you know committing a crime and you would arrest them in a way and, and control them in such a way where they're safe you're safe and the public is safe so it's not like that traditional heavy-handed police approach it was a very technical kind of fighting system yeah. where there weren't actually any punches thrown or anything. Um, and that was a really interesting counterpoint to tactical crab where it's just like every time you block, you strike at the same time mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's nasty, you know? So I ended up doing all of that stuff. I was uh, Bert Newton's bodyguard and his lovely wife, Patty mm-hmm. here and there. Um, I had these crazy jobs where the bank Say you're a criminal, you're a bad hombre, and uh, and you, you've gone to prison for a long stretch, but you got a house. The bank wants your house, so they'd send me in there with a Glock 19 and a few mags of ammo, and I'd just sit in your house, order pizza, and watch your TV, and guard it from the inside. And nothing ever happened. Yeah, it was just the most relaxing, easy of jobs. Mm-hmm. So I did things like that. Um, I'd do soft skin work where you're just wearing civilian clothes, jeans and a hoodie, and you go into Collins Street and pick up diamond shipments and deliver them from here to there. Um, working for pharmaceutical companies, delivering, you know, like pharmaceutical grade heroin and things like that, yeah. which I've got no interest in. So it was hmm. all, you know, I can sleep just fine. Thanks. <laughs> so it was all, uh, you know, it was all pretty interesting. And then eventually um, I kind of stepped up more and more and got more and more like i was just 100 percent upskilling all the time because i 
didn't want to be unemployed so yeah. i was always trying to be better than the next guy and then eventually i did a, a gig for the u.s air force and uh and then i started doing here in australia and then i started doing outbound uh contracting work in north africa and the middle east and everywhere else um and in the beginning i was still doing like i must have did um what they call cpp which is the technical term for bodyguard work i did that for every rapper on earth right like most deaf you know pharaoh monche like everybody that you can think of um i did a lot of like more rock bands than i'll ever remember i looked after henry rollins which was really weird because he's not a guy that you would think would need need one yeah you know and maybe he doesn't it might have been like a prerequisite in his contract you know yeah but uh next to henry i'm a beast and next to me you know like you're a beast so that gives you yeah, yeah. a sense of the scale of yeah. like you know how how tiny he was in reality not tiny like i'm not trying to badmouth the guy he's brilliant but you know so that was the beginning and then i sort of started drifted more and more into into the um the outbound stuff and as a result uh rock and roll and music just kind of became a, a distant memory for for a long time and I felt like this is my life now, like this is what I do and and that's it, you know. A long story, extremely long story short, sorry everyone. Um, I love it, this is great. <laughs> I, got, um, I got my foot broken, my left foot broken, I got shot in the neck, uh, all in one day. Jesus. It's fine, but um, I, <laughs> you know, came home and I had that necessary kind of recalibration period mm -hmm. couldn't work and um and so i just thought about what what's happening you know what's happening now what's happening with me and um you know i i i, I realized a lot of things you know a lot of things that you know kind of like were really super necessary to realize and um and it made me the fundamental thing that I realized was that um, I didn't want to do that anymore. And uh, there were so many reasons. Most notably, we should never, like none of us, should have ever been in the Middle East in the first place, you know. And, and we could talk about that, you know, forever. But, um, but yeah, I, I just realized that all of the things that I'd made priorities shouldn't have been priorities. And, and I'd just very much gone down the wrong path for a really long time and I was definitely getting too old to be playing soldiers you know um, for people who don't know what a PSC does it's different every day and so sometimes you'll be escorting uh, VIP like business people from an airport to a hotel um, sometimes you'll be full soldiering and everything in between sometimes you'll be you know standing under a you know supersonic bomber out in the desert and just stay there for two days and and you're all alone and if anybody comes that isn't the military you shoot them you know mm -hmm. so it's um yeah it was a, a, a wide and varied job but i just reached the you know like when i had those injuries it was just like great timing and it was a wake-up call yeah you know um but i still needed work and so everybody's gonna hate me but um i came back and i did the victoria police exam right and um i passed that with a near perfect score which surprised me more than anyone why do you think people would hate you oh because you know roses don't have the best reputation you know I, I get it you know like uh, i i i obviously had friends 
who were cops then and they um kind of paved the way for my entry mm. um but also you still read the papers and hear what some of them get up to and it's it's unacceptable and terrible so you know yeah they've got a bit of a pr issue that they need to need to sort out and generally people in music like to take drugs and party and get wild and free and while i don't i don't judge those that do yeah, yeah. and the police are the ones that like to stop you from doing that if at all possible so um it just seemed like a sensible move and my plan was to hopefully transition into the special operations group eventually because that was kind of like what i already had experience with yeah. um and again fate intervened and i was ready to go to the police training college mornings are terrible because everything bad always happens in the morning for me so i was all you know showered up ready to go i had my bags i was ready to go to police academy which is not what they call it and uh, ken lay became the new police commissioner so he's not anymore but he became the new police commissioner and he had a major beef with two things in new recruits beards and tattoos mm -hmm. and i've got a lot of both of that mm -hmm. so um even though my experience and qualifications were kind of like well beyond the level that they require for a, a police officer um i you know the message was don't bother it seemed like they didn't want the best recruits they just wanted the most presentable recruits who may right. in some cases have just scraped past the testing mm -hmm. and you know i've always believed that um it takes all kinds of different people to police a community like I see uh, Sikh police officers and they've got their turbans and being Sikhs, they, I don't know what people sort of know about other religions, but Sikh people have these things called articles of faith. So you'll see that they've got these silver bracelets on. And what you don't see is they're carrying three concealed knives with them called kirpans and they're articles of faith because they're soldiers of God. So they always have to be kind of ready. But thankfully for us, Sikh people are in the main and overwhelmingly fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so there's no, you know, another Sikh stabbing this yeah. week. You know, that, that doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, so I thought it sort of took all kinds of different people to, to get the job done. And we've all seen completely bogan cops and it's kind of cool because they can talk to the bogans yeah. and talk them down without having an issue, you know. They can de-escalate. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad it didn't work out. Because I'm, as you can see, I'm a peace-loving hippie now. Like since Absolutely. I stopped contracting, I got really long hair, and uh, I'm all peace and love. Um, but yeah, so the the experiences that I had through all different levels of security, not just the more intense stuff, um, it made me see the world in a completely different way. And I, I learned to see the people, the the things that I valued, the things that I found toxic, and um, how to best to navigate through life while maintaining a healthy balance and if anybody talks to me extensively one of the things that i constantly bang on about is every single thing in life is about balance which relates to luthery so um while i was on this break and rediscovering myself i had about 40 odd guitars in the apartment i used to live in paran mm -hmm. and uh i would have taken up most of the apartment yeah and uh, some of them I'd bought. I had. I used to have like a major hard-on for Ibanez. Mm -hmm. So I had like all of these Ibanez things. And one of my friends um, that I met through Instagram, I used to have a private profile, uh, sorry, a, a personal profile mm -hmm. on Instagram. And now I'm just Temple, that's it. But um, I met a guy called Simon who's in a band called Nightmare. 
in uh, in Florida over there, and he's this super cool dude. But we kind of had a mini arms race of Ibanez guitars, and mm-hmm. he had some killer ones, and I had some killer ones. And we started sort of stockpiling; it was ridiculous. And some of the other guitars were um, were really precious to me because they were given to me by artists on tour. That you know, when you're a tech, it's not uncommon for them at the end of a run to say thank you and give you a guitar that, in some cases, is worth stratospheric amounts of money. It's crazy, which isn't what it's about. Yeah, you're yeah, just yeah, stoked that they remember you, you know, yeah. or whatever. But um, some of them needed work, so I got on that site stewmac.com, and uh, I downloaded. Uh, sorry, I, I ordered you know the the necessary tools and i did the work and i found it really super meditative um working on guitars instead of just bashing away on them again you know working on them and i worked out that when i was working on guitars the rest of the world and all of the kind of problems that i had faded into the background and so in a very specific and real sense um, my workplace had become my temple if you will and you and I uh, are both non-religious people, but um, but you know what I mean. You know, yeah. a temple doesn't have to be related to, you know, a deity or anything like I that. Spirituality and religion are two different things. That's right. So, enter ayahuasca. <laughs> so, let's get Joe Rogan in here and Duncan Trussell. We'll yeah. have a conversation. Yeah. But um, I put some pics up on Instagram and I started getting DMs from people saying, can you please make me a guitar? And I just caught me with my pants down completely. I was just like, what's going on? Like, yeah. I'm just fixing my stuff. But people saw what I fixed and how I fixed it. And also, let's not forget years before, which is something we skipped over, but I worked at a place in Australia called Cole Clark, which we can talk about if you want. But um, I fixed, you know, fixed these guitars. People sort of started sliding into my dms mm-hmm. as the young people mm-hmm. like the, the lit generation like to say and this is at cole clark no 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 this no. was like years later right so i was just on insta yep yep fixing these guitars that i got on tour or that i bought and upgrading and you know like sometimes an ibanez will come with a shit trim and so you got to put a decent one on and what have you um and i just realized from all of the the people that started hitting me up for builds that this is probably going to be what the next significant chapter of my life is mm-hmm. um so i never set out to be a guitar company or anything i just kind of fell into it and uh yeah and that cole clark uh link you know that mm-hmm. cole clark piece of my history probably definitely helped yeah because i had pictures up of builds that i did when i was at cole clark or that i collaborated on because it's a team you know yeah yeah um and when we were there like we were looking after Josh from Queens of the Stone Age, Dave Grohl, Ben Harper, and pretty much every Australian band that we liked. Mm-hmm. It was obscene because if there was a band like 28 Days, you know, like 28 Days are what they are and, and they at that period of time were doing were doing great things and they seem to be on like this massive trajectory and and, and that's fantastic. But like, if I think if you're just objectively honest, they're not a band that really required or deserved sponsorship. No offense, Hep or anyone else. Yeah. But we just wanted to sponsor them because we like Hep and everyone else. So yeah. we just threw guitars at them mm-hmm. and everybody, and it was just it's just terribly, just irresponsible. And mm-hmm. I'll never regret it. And we had a great time. 
Awesome. And they had a great time. And suddenly all these guitars that were only made last month are on TV and out there in the world and people were talking and it gave Cole Clark the start that they needed. So when people would look at my old Insta um, and see these guitars that we made for these, you know, very big artists and they'd just be like, I want a piece of that. I want that. Guy. It was exactly like U2. Once I did U2, I was like, I want that guy to tech for me. Yeah. And once I made a guitar for this guy, that guy, it's like, I want a guitar from that guy. So, you know. Oh. Who was that? I don't know. It wasn't me. We're having, just just for those that aren't in the room with us, we're having like mysterious Came beeping sounds. from the direction of my phone, but I don't know. I've never heard that sound before, but anyway, we'll ignore it. You're getting hacked. Probably. It's cool. Chinese people. We're not, we're not running out of battery, that's for sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and just to sort of uh, put that into perspective for people, um, when I first got to Australia, um, you know, and when I was in that period of touring and everything, I met this guy that you know, Colsey, Adam mm-hmm. Clark, who is, you know, it's uh, like everyone agrees, he's the best human that ever lived, ever, and probably ever will. So he's also, as well as being just like a rad dude, He's also an encyclopedia of guitar history, how to make guitars, how to fix guitars. He's just, he's ridiculous. And um, I don't know why, same as I'm on this podcast and I don't know why, I don't know how. But um, when I was touring around Australia, I first got here, all these people would say to me, oh man, there's this guy, Adam Clark, and he wants to, uh, Adam Cole, I am so sorry, Adam, that is the worst insult I could give you. (laughs) We'll get to that. Adam Cole, and he wants to meet you. And I was just like, oh, I don't understand why, but okay. And so um, I was friends for many years in New Zealand and also in Australia with a guy called Ross International. And Ross is Nick Cave's guitar tech. He takes care of the church. He's, he's killing it. It's just a beast of, of teching. And uh, we borrowed someone's Volvo and we went out to Bayswater where Maton was and um, by, by invitation to go out there. And, um, yeah, we walked into that factory and it was just like when I walked into that first stadium show, just blew my mind because it was so big. There were so many people in there doing all of these crazy, awesome things and just like making guitars like that's so cool. And just to give everyone listening a sense of of Maton, in case you didn't know, like they were founded in 1946, which is the same year that the Fender Musical Instrument Company was was founded so as far as australia is concerned you got to give props to maton for their innovations and and you know for, for in the 50s when there were bands you know playing with a with a a national kind of spotlight on them they're playing matons you know yeah. like this is a it's as australian as i don't know i'm scared to say veggie might because it might be owned by an overseas conglomerate but you know what i'm saying so yeah i went in there blew my mind met Adam, he blew my mind, just the loveliest guy. And then I went back to my life. And a few months later, he called me up and he said, uh, I'm opening up my own dealio and I want you to come and work there. And again, I was just like, what? You know, yep. say what? And, uh, but I said yes, because it was him. And uh, yeah, so I, I joined the Cole Clark crew back when it was nine people and by contrast now it's 100 200 people it was one factory now it's three that have like doorways knocked out in between Mm -hmm. them you know and uh, everybody had their own department so you know cole was in painting and all all these different people 
And my job was I was in setup. So when guitars were painted, you know, they were cut out, sanded, painted, they'd come to me, I'd assemble them, I'd wire them, I'd set them up, I'd pack them and get them out of there. So I was like the last port of call and yep. quality control and basically making all of these disparate bits and pieces into guitars. Um, and yeah, that was, as you can imagine, just the best education that you could possibly ask for. Did that for however long I did it, uh, I'll say less than a year. Uh, the problem is um, there was the other guy in Cole Clark is, is Brad Clark and he's an asshole and uh it's not just like a clash of personalities or anything but he was the kind of guy that would bully the employees you'd never get away with it now like you know how culture and Mm -hmm. society have changed so much lately you just can't hold sharp chisels to people's throats and say i'm going to kill you really anymore believe it or not it's not it's not cool he didn't do it to me um but he did you know, he did that kind of thing and he did it often and he was always about intimidation and all of that. And like I say, he never did it to me and I kind of had survivor guilt. I felt really bad because mm-hmm. it was like, why, why is he such an a-hole to everybody else? Yeah, and then yeah. I'm sort of just like golden. I don't understand it, but I understand it now. It's because he's a bully and he knew that I would have given him a whack back. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so he didn't want to didn't want to do it. But um, it really offended my sense of justice. And because every single person that worked in that factory was just the best dude. Yep. And they were building a dream. Now Cole Clark's like, they won best in show at NAMM recently. Like they're killing it, even though they don't make electric guitars anymore. Losers. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, it, it, was a, it was an incredible time. And we all knew that we were there at the birth of something that's going to mean something. Yeah. And uh, just toxic, just toxic. And, and I thought you know, time to get out. And so that's kind of when I started slipping into sessions and all of that. I got to apologize to all the, all the listeners for, uh, for being non-chronological like Instagram. It must be. So, oh, that's probably my fault. So annoying for everyone. Hey, but you were here a minute ago yeah. and now you're over <laughs> here. And wh- what do you do for yeah, a job I, anyway? I, I think this, this one was always going to jump around the shop. Yeah. I'm, I'm crazy. Sorry, everyone. No, that, that's totally fine. So if we go back to or forward, forward rewind session. but forward this time rewind but forward to um people starting to ask you to make guitars yes um so i did it was pretty simple and everything that i did was a custom build so my first build was a seven string multi-scale super strat with um individual bridge saddles insane you know especially like being my first full build and the interesting thing is, to interesting to me, you know, um, is, you know, my paint booth Yes. in the workshop. Basically, for everyone listening, my paint booth is, you know, about eight feet long by five feet wide and just tall enough to stand up. And I'm 6'2", and Aaron is eight feet tall, eight or nine. And... Um, I bought that originally. It was a um, hydroponic marijuana growing kind of operation tent. And I, uh, I got it on eBay for dirt cheap. And I set it up in the lounge room of the, um, of the apartment to contain the dust. And that was Temple Guitars for the first few builds. Mm-hmm. And the first few builds turned out like I'd certainly do a few things different now. But um, I was incorporating features like blind frets scarf jointed necks 
all these kinds of things before I had any actual machines. So it was all very hand, you know, traditional handmade kind of deal. And uh, I did it in that tent. And now I've kind of, it's very easy to chart my growth because you go in the workshop and it's full of big intimidating machines. And then that, that um, paint booth, that tent that used to be the entire world of temple is now in the corner and you'd blink and you'd miss it. So it's the smallest part of and the Yeah, operation. you do spray tans in there. Yeah, if you ask me nicely. <laughs> nitrocellulose spray tans. Explosive. They're explosive. So, yeah. Um, I, I did those builds and, and I just... I mean, clearly I liked it. It was so challenging though. Like guitar making is super hard. It's super hard. And if anybody comes along and says, oh, you know, guess what? It's super easy. I want you to punch that person in the face because it's not true. You know, it's, you're constantly, I mean, especially if you care about the product and we all should, and it shouldn't be a product. That's a terrible thing to say. If you care about the build, mm -hmm. you know, um, then yeah, you, it just, kind of becomes this relationship you have with three or four or five or six different pieces of wood and you go through this roller coaster of emotions it, it's just not easy you might be planing back the top that's going to be the cap of a guitar and then you find a big void in there or if you're lucky some insects mm -hmm. you know and all, all kinds of things can happen and uh, some of the machines we use are wildly unpredictable like router tables you know, they'll grab the work and just throw it across the room if, you, if you're not super careful and yeah. even sometimes when you are. And it's happened to people that I look up to as luthiers and they'll message me on Insta and be like, oh, I'm out of the workshop today. I can't go back in. I'm terrified. Yeah. This just happened. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a big deal. And so it's, it's horrible for them that that happened and it's great for me because it's like, cool, it happens to everyone. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, I did that. And then, you know, you mentioned recently about me upgrading my workshop. So I was in that apartment in Paran and I thought this is not, un you know, this is not sustainable. And I was deeply unhappy kind of being in the city um, for a number of reasons. But I, I mentioned before I sort of embarked on this journey of personal growth and Paran wasn't the place to do that. Paran's a place to be if you want to do yoga and act like a poser which isn't to say there aren't good people there because they're everywhere, but yeah. it just wasn't, it was toxic for me yeah. everywhere. There were just people everywhere. So I elected to move to the country and right now we're sitting in a very, very quiet and relaxed place. It's great. Called Lara three, two, one, two. And, um, this was a very, very good move for, for very, you know, for a lot of reasons. And so what I did was about uh, 14 months ago, a bit over a year ago, I'd done some builds and I'd prototyped a bunch of guitars. I've made some like telly thin lines and made them my own. Like you can see a, a telly normally has a lower horn and I cut that off. It's, it, it seems, ex, you know, like excessive to me and uh, I don't want to get sued. Um, mm -hmm. But also if you remember the Maton MS520 or the mm -hmm. 520S, yeah. it's just a stripped down rock and roll machine. And for those of you people who don't get turned on by serial numbers, it was... Um, the kind of guitar that Josh played when Queens of the Stone Age started popping off and so you'd see the videos and if you're an Aussie musician you'd just be like that dude is literally playing a mate on right mm -hmm. now like oi 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 and so yeah that's kind of like I love that guitar um, and I love that time in history and so that's kind of my doff of the hat mm -hmm. my tip of the fedora mm -hmm. if you will don't do that um mm -hmm. 
so yeah so i decided it was time to move out here and i i started making some guitars and everything i thought you know what if something's worth doing it's worth doing properly so i'm going to shut down operations for a year and the idea was um to buy bigger scarier machines like industrial grade machines um i transitioned from making everything by hand to cnc uh which is computer numerically controlled basically getting a robot to do your carving for you unfortunately what i didn't think about is you have to program the damn thing so that took a long time it was a steep learning curve and i'm still on it mm -hmm. but um yeah i just kind of shut the doors closed the order books and said i'm gonna sort of invest a few tens of thousands of dollars into this thing and just really make it as as super precise quality and fast turnaround as possible yep. like you see with that teletron model mm. that i gave you i made it from concept to execution in three days including finish yeah so that's all right it's crazy you know because if you don't make guitars you probably don't know it but when you spray uh, a layer of uh, nitro or poly or whatever it is that you're using and then you might do clear coats you've got to allow a couple of weeks and sometimes longer for all of that all those chemicals to do a thing called outgassing um if the finish dries with the gases in it, then you'll get bubbles. And you can see that if you've ever used things like epoxy or what have you. But now we've got these insane and highly sexual finishes that, you know, other people won't find it like that, but I do, where you can literally put down a finish, spray an activator on it, and it is dry and it's ready to go. So right now, the world of guitar is is undergoing a very sort of quiet revolution and it's amazing for everyone involved because it also means quicker out the door means cheaper to produce and yep. not by that much like don't get excited but yeah. uh <laughs> yeah so um it was a hard decision because i had to i had to you know like i had to stop being a luthier i guess and just go to school and learn how to I, I'm an autodidact, so I taught myself all of the software and everything yep. and the practical kind of things about machining that I needed to learn. But And I've still got all my fingers, which is just amazing. But, yeah, um, I just did it and, and stopped sort of caring about what other people were demanding from me and, and just thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it as, as good as I possibly can. So technically the doors are still closed until April, I hoped that I'd be finished up with everything that I wanted to do and upgrade um, by New Year's, but life had other plans and that's cool. Yeah. It's totally fine. So, yeah. So, you know, the, the future is um, more, you know, more builds that incorporate much, much more intense uh, engineering behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping to, I'm not going to promise, but my hope is to start a YouTube channel uh, because as well as just regular people saying, like your guitars, what can you, you know, what have you got? I, I always get sort of that's 20% of my DMs and then the other 80% is luthiers and they contact me and say, how did you do that? Or I, sometimes I put up like a quick tip on my insta and people just be like you just blew my mind like what the hell yeah. and i had no idea i'm just sort of doing what i do but apparently 
people like my jigs and templates and, and hacks. And so that's what I want to do with YouTube as well as document full builds because I, I really love to meditate watching people make things, whether it's pottery or, you know, anything, drawing, painting or making guitars. It's like it's super cool to just chill to it. So that's something else that I want to do. But it's it's going to be kind of like a portal for luthiers if they don't know something that I know then they can know it and uh, I'm going to offer free 3D you know plans blueprints files anything that they need um, so that they can just download it and get to it and just share the love that's awesome yeah people don't know it but luthiers in the main aren't competitive we all just dig guitars and, and we tend to sort of meet each other and go Hey, bro, like we're just cool with each other. Yeah, I can see that. Like just, just reading the, the comments on some of your posts by other, you know, luthiers and just so many guitar cool companies people. and stuff. And yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's trippy when, you know, like legitimate guitar companies turn up in your profile. Like there's a guy who's the um, master builder at the Fender Custom Shop mm-hmm. and he's got, you know, thousand, thousand followers and he follows hardly anyone. And he turned up on my profile and started like dropping comments and stuff. And I DM'd him. I said, dude, am I in trouble? Because, you know, I do yeah. teleblaster guitars mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. blaster guitars and all this. And he was like, no way. I love, I love your feed. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm digging this. I'm feeling inspired. This is really cool. And uh, that's amazing, you know, to have like basically the, the creative sort of force of modern Fender turn up on my profile you know mm. i just I, I i still sort of can't get my head around it but i'm i'm grateful and then the funny thing is and i'm probably just dreaming so please forgive me but i could swear that te- that um fender's starting to do some pretty temple things lately mm-hmm. and and it's like yeah that's cool you know because yeah. again it's not about winning yeah. more you know it's just i want to see these guitars come into the world and i don't care who makes them yeah. you know there's this real um like you just kind of alluded to, there's this real uh, bush telegraph kind of thing of of luthiers on Instagram. And, and so most people don't see it and don't realize it. But there are competitive luthiers on Instagram and they suck so mm-hmm. hard mm-hmm. and nobody likes them. And why would you? You know what I mean? But most of us are out there asking, how did you do that? How do I do that? Mm. You know, and, and I do the same. So... It, it truly is one of those things of what goes around comes around. People will ask me for a CNC file of something that I might have put 300 hours into. Happy to share it. And so I'll give it to them. And then down the track, they might lay down a finish that I find compelling. And I'll tentatively message them and just be like, hey, uh, would you be so kind as to tell me how, how, how do I do that? And they'll just be like, bro, here it is. You know, yeah. and they just send yeah. it down the line. So that's a that's a beautiful thing and it's i think it's part of like that camaraderie of of musicians because obviously everybody that makes guitars plays them yeah yeah no so yeah yeah absolutely did that answer any of your questions (laughs) it did it did you know it's sort of um it sort of it goes to show you the the impact that that social media is having um and you know the, the the thing i noticed about your feed um I'm scared. No, no, it's it's the fact that like you know, like I follow a lot of the mainstream guitar companies and stuff. And I know a lot of the, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a lot of the. I don't leave comments. <laughs> a lot I of swear. them, um, 
you know, they just they just post their their you know their their latest stock, their new stock, new arrivals, new releases, whatnot. The things that they want to market to. Exactly, you. exactly. Whereas you don't do any of that. You you no. You're you're all about giving people value. You know, I'm so you, glad that somebody like, noticed that. It's like you you. Like I'm, I've learned so much. As much as I mean, I've been playing guitars for, you know, close to thirty years, but I know nothing about building them, and like, I, I feel like I'm getting an education from watching, you know, your Instagram feed. And it's I couldn't be more honoured, dude. I love that, it. That's not just a like thing I'm saying. That's it's, real. It's, it, like I'm fascinated by it, and I think uh, anyone that's, that's into guitar would would get, you know, a lot of value out of it. Well, that that's super awesome. So the, the YouTube, the YouTube idea is great. I mean, I joke with my with my friend Adam. I, I joke around and say, yeah, you know, I can't wait to get, you know, my thirteen followers or something. And maybe I w- I won't even get that. I, this is a thing about social media. I just don't care. Yeah, exactly. And I used to care very deeply. And you know, you you, you and I previously, when we first talked about this, we you know, you said I, I would really like to sort of touch on mental health aspects of mm. creativity and stuff and we can definitely do that but like i said before I, I started to uh realize the things that were destructive in my life and like everybody knows social media is just cancer so i deleted facebook twitter everything and i'm not trying to be like one of those guys you know like i'm vegan or yeah, whatever yeah, you know yeah. like i'm not trying to virtue signal but i just i recognized that that was just toxic in my life all of that stuff and and the personal profile that i had I used to be at knifey on Instagram. I don't know who, who's got that handle now, but um, that used to be me and I put my whole life up on there. And then one day I just went, what am I doing? Yeah. And, and it was such a healthy move. Um, so, you know, we've all heard the arguments about what social media has become and how it isolates us rather than brings us together. And yeah, it just, it, wow, you know, thanks so much that you see what I'm what I'm trying to do because... I don't, I hardly ever post. Mm. I refuse to do what Instagram tells me. So I've got this huge permaban slapped on me where one out of every hundred people that follow me actually gets to see what I'm posting. Mm-hmm. I don't give a shit. If they care enough, they'll seek me out. Yeah. If they don't, that's fine too. I'm not here for popularity. I'm not here for numbers. I just I just love guitars. And, and so, you know, Dan Kirby and, you know, Trav and these other people that you've had on the podcast they're like big time social media people and and they've got all these tens of thousands of followers and it's like super impressive and then there's me and i've got you know like three and a half or something you know and uh, i appreciate those people but um yeah social media just is meaningless to me so i don't feed social media i just give it what i want to give it and what i want to give it is is tools for people to use and positivity and and support you know, nine tenths of my, yeah, probably ninety nine out of a hundred percent of of what I do on social media is just answer questions in my DMs. Yep. You know, and uh, I feel good about that. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Hopefully that was relevant to Absolutely. the question. But yeah. But yeah. I don't actually think I asked a question. I think I was just just commenting. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, okay. Well, yeah. I I appreciate it. You know because you never know what other people are thinking and, and mm. obviously social media does isolate us. I live out here in the country and, and don't see anyone yeah. for weeks at a time. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, other people's perspectives on what I'm doing are, are interesting 
to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thank you for seeing that. That says a lot about you, I think. No, thank you for for putting the content out there. Hey, that, that's so is, interesting and this is lovely. You know, and it's valuable. Like like I said, I've I've, I've learned a lot, and um, yeah, it's just it's something that I actually enjoy and look forward to. Like it's not the usual crap that people post. Hopefully, know. I don't I don't know. I don't claim to know anything. But, yeah, it's um, in, it's informative and. You know, just a little little bit of sense of humour thrown in there as well. <laughs> Inconceivable. That's not true. <laughs> no, it is. Anyway, um, so tell me, what was it like to 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 sell your first guitar? Okay, uh, it was a relief. A relief. Yeah, because what people don't know about Luthery is it's prohibitively expensive and the reason that they don't know that and i don't blame them you know is because china makes guitars for three cents not really three cents but you know what i mean yeah Um, they source their timber unsustainably in vast quantities and they train people who have no actual love for the instrument churn out their part of that instrument and um i mean you know let's be honest i've been to like the fender factory one of the fender factories in gibson and all of this kind of stuff and they just slam guitars together too and it doesn't seem to be a lot of love but that's just because of kpis and you know the pressure of yep. trying to operate a corporation um but china's different and i've, I've seen you know i've seen these chinese factories um, I had the offer from an outside source early on with Tim, reasonably early on with Temple, where they said, we like what you're doing. And what we're offering is we'll mass produce your guitars and market them worldwide, um, but we're going to make them in China. And so you can come over sort of however often you want and do QC quality control. Um, but we'll be able to like churn these things out for just one tenth what it costs you to make them. Mm-hmm. And the answer was no. Yeah. Um, because when people want a guitar made by me, they want it made by me in particular and for, for better or worse. Yeah. And I've got a, I've sort of made myself a promise that no matter how many people want guitars, I'm never going to make more than say 50 a year, probably half of that 25 a year sounds yep. good. Um, it's not that I can't do more cause I can do infinitely more than that. Mm-hmm. But um, let's just keep a lid on it. Let's just keep it quality and let's just keep it so that Temple actually means something. That's yeah. what I'm trying to do. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, uh, China is a, is, is a big force and they flood the market with all of this stuff. And a lot of people, um, a lot of young guitar people, like not everybody's rich. That's the thing about social mm. media. Everybody looks rich, but most people in the world aren't. And so you'll have some kid you know, in Mexico and he just wants a Kirk Hammett Ouija ESP clone. And so he'll pay $280 to China or whatever and get it. And, and he's not going to know the difference. Whereas you and I would touch it and just go, ew, like this is horrible. But as long as it's got that graphic, that kid's stoked, you know? And so it distorts people's perceptions of what a guitar is. And while it's true, (laughs) pontificating here, while it's true that a guitar is just literally bits of tree and metal from the ground you know like it's just made of natural things um 
and therefore it's not really that precious as far as the um, components are concerned. The level of skill it takes to bring them all together in a harmoniously balanced instrument um, is huge and the amount of love that you've got to have to go through it like most people don't know what fret dressing is and they don't know how much goes into it i can just bang it out without thinking i'm really fast at it now mm -hmm. and they always turn out the way i want but obviously there was a really big investment of time and energy and i lost so much of my eyesight you know mm -hmm. trying to learn that but um yeah, you know, you got to have love and you got to put effort into it in order for a guitar. It sounds so wanky, but you have to have love for the instrument in order for it to mean half a shit, you know. And so people don't know that. They see all these cheap guitars out there and they just think, well, why can't you make me a guitar that cheap? They don't understand that it costs me to make a simple telly mm. style guitar. It, it costs me more than a thousand dollars generally each guitar. Yep. And because of my view about money... Um, if you know i don't have a lot of it and that's fine that's how i kind of set my life up money mm. isn't a priority mm. for me at all i just don't care about it um which is terrible as a business person inverted commas um but yeah if i don't sell a guitar then i can't make it make another one for a while yeah and if i do make another one and i haven't sold the one before i've had to generate that money myself mm -hmm. you know so um yeah guitar making isn't isn't what people think it is and uh that's that's pretty much it it's it's super expensive it's super difficult and yeah. people don't really understand or appreciate what's behind it and i'm not in any way on a campaign or a quest to educate the world mm. on how guitars you know i don't expect most people to care but i do know that there are a phenomenal amount of people out there in the world like me who like to sit back with a big m a chocolate big M and watch YouTube build videos of whatever the fuck ever. Mm -hmm. And they just chill to that. Yep. And then we learn things. Mm -hmm. That's it. And that's a beautiful, that's yeah, yeah. a beautiful thing about this social media, modern phenomenon that actually works for us. Yeah. And when, when you did sell your first guitar. Yep. And it was a relief. Um, Quoting me. Of, sorry. Quoting me. That's cool. <laughs> um, do you get a lot of feedback? Yeah, uh, the honest truth of it is that the guy hated it. Right. He hated it. Okay. I loved it. Mm -hmm. And I was, I've got pictures of it up on my Insta and you can make up your own mind. Yeah, what do you uh, hate about it? It's the super strat with the New Guinea rosewood top. It's beautiful. Um, he hated the neck heel joint arrangement. And so being a human being, I wasn't born formed perfectly you know mm. and i evolve over time and and so with that build i actually um have a blog spot account that i don't touch anymore but when i was first starting out at that apartment in paran mm -hmm. I, I documented with photographs um the entire build process and explained with words what was going on yeah and that's a thing that i like to chill to too so there's that if you if you give you know if you if you're into that kind of thing it's out there but um the main purpose of it was the uh, customer was in Sweden. Sweet guy, really mm -hmm. lovely guy. And uh, um, he, he had the opportunity through this blog to constantly be updated on build progress. And every single thing that I did was run by him first. It was his custom build and I wanted him to be happy. So we literally spent three days 
at one point just messaging back and forth trying to work out what kind of fret dots to put on it you know and uh that i i guess that's as you would expect right yeah so i did this heel joint and i showed him every um step of the way and the thing about the heel joint was now i can do fully like liquid heel joints and i can impregnate them with carbon fiber sheets and carbon fiber rods in epoxy so the you know apocalypse can happen and that baby isn't moving for anyone um but back then I didn't have access to that stuff. I wasn't au fait with the processes. So what I did was just made the strongest compromise. Now, you know, when you play a traditional Fender guitar and in many cases with Gibsons too, they got a big blocky heel joint. And the reason that they did that is because back in the day when Leo was designing the telly or the Strat, no one was up there going, whittle, whittle, wow, yep. nobody. Those frets were just kind of there as a, courtesy yeah, yeah you know hey buy a strat get these extra frets yeah. you know 21 or 22 who really gives a shit yeah. just you know yeah. play some surf rock and have a good time mm -hmm. but um i always hated them and so on my prototypes and the guitars that i'll be releasing out into the wild in the next year um they're all fluid and organic and that's really important to me ergonomics are super important it's this is terribly wanky but it all feeds into that non-religious spirituality that we we're talking about mm -hmm. before um the form of the guitar and how it feels in your hand that's everything and maybe you're different but i would forgive a guitar that was tonally kind of deficient or a little bit retarded tonally if that fretboard and my interaction with it just felt so good yeah you know when you just sometimes you play a guitar and the way the strings spank mm -hmm. is just wow you know, I got a strat like that. I got a fender like that, and it's just—I'll never sell it. Yeah, because yeah. of that reason. Yeah, I've got a Gretsch the same. Like I love playing. Oh, that. you got a Gretsch? Yeah, that's it, awesome. No, it's a—it's a thousand-dollar it's a cheap. I'm—I'm I'm just Gretsch. I'm but, jealous. Gretsch is a beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It—it it, like it. I love playing it, but yeah. it sounds like shit. Like yeah, it's just got balls. that feel. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So yeah. So I have no idea what we were talking about, but I do know that I was talking about sort of, you know, organics and, oh yeah, I was talking about that guy's build. So uh, I, I want my guitars to be organic. And so that heel joint was very much a compromise between a blocky, solid, well-engineered, strong heel joint with organic elements brought in. So if you can imagine the guitars on its face and you're looking at its bum, mm -hmm. and looking at its back, it flowed up beautifully, but the sides were still square. Right. And whereas now I would round it all over and, mm -hmm. and you've seen that and yep, everybody yep. on my Insta seen that. So, um, I documented it fully and when he got it, he opened up the case and he was messaging me in real time over in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And he said, <gasps> you know, he took a photo of the case and of it open and I slipped some adventure time stickers in there. Cause you know, let's be cute and yep. weird and uh he was stoked he was yep. absolutely stoked and then a day or two later he he sent me this email and it really broke my heart and mm. i felt like it kind of broke his heart too and he said i'm really unhappy and this is why you know the the heel joint has this shape which was less of a heel joint than a fender bear in mind this was a seven string multi-scale so mm -hmm. the heel was substantially bigger yep. um but he just said yeah for this reason and, and a couple of others that the other thing, I can't even remember what the other things were, but when I told him why they were, he was just like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Don't worry about it. But the heel was an issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, like, well, 
if you want to, you know, you can just get a file because it was an oil finish. So mm -hmm. you can just get a file, sandpaper it, and then just touch it up with some true oil and, and rub on it. And, and you'd never know. You can, you can literally form it how you want. Yep. Because by that stage, the neck was glued in. It was, mm -hmm. it was solid. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the honest truth. My first customer was wildly upset and he didn't want to send the guitar back. And I was disappointed because I would have loved to have owned it. But um, I've got the photos and, and, and that's about that. But he was the only person um, in my life that I've ever disappointed as a tech or as a luthier or anything. And it hit me really hard. But, you know, when these things happen, you've just got to kind of be pragmatic and, and do the internal math and just go, I, I did everything I could to make sure this guy was happy. He wasn't happy. He didn't want to send it back. So really, I'm just going to hands off, but, you know, move on, mm. but learn the lesson and never do that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now my guitars are fluid and lovely and, and it, you know, like I said, I was just starting out. I couldn't, literally couldn't have done anything differently. Yeah. Now I can do anything you want and I'm super arrogant <laughs> and uh, don't worry about it, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the, uh, the, the multi-scale. Speaking of your famed arrogance. Like you've... <laughs> another thing that, that, you know, has attracted me to your guitars is the fact that you can, you can do anything. You can build anything from... You know these these classic looking guitars behind me, to the aforementioned you. eight string, seven string multi scale beast. Just for the record, like, I don't do seven strings anymore. Just eight, six or eight, six or eight. Make a decision. Why? Why not seven? Get an eight and take the eighth off. Right. I can't be bothered. <laughs> I told you I'm arrogant now. Um, <laughs> I I mentioned Simon Howerman before, who's in Nightmare and used to be mm -hmm. in a band called War from a Harlot's Mouth. Um, and if you're into like extreme metal, he's, he's a freaking superstar and, uh, he is a huge, like he, he's a guy that obviously was influenced by Dino Cesare's Fear Factory, seven strings, deep, you know, deeper tunings, yep. all of that kind of stuff. So Simon has all kinds of weird kind of tunings and, and he's got a real ear. He's a producer. And so he, um, he knows what works for him and he's got nothing to prove. Yep. You know how some people like Jared Dines are out there playing like a 50 string harp, you know, as a guitar. And it's, it's just kind of like there's an arms race for how mm -hmm. many strings you can put on. My personal opinion, and it's just my personal opinion, I don't expect anyone to subscribe to it, is that eight strings are very cool and six strings are very cool. And because you've got both of those things covered a seven string is kind of just doesn't matter whereas my friend simon who i was just mentioning he he'll play six strings that are radically detuned if they've got a long enough scale length or if they're baritone or something like that um but generally seven strings are, are what he likes and so you know as long as he's going to behave like that he's never going to get a guitar from me <laughs> uh, you know i completely like he knows way more than i do about extended range guitars and all of that kind of stuff and i absolutely um bow before his superior wisdom but i'm still not going to make seven strings yeah. i just i just go somewhere else you yeah. know um that sounds horrible i know but i just want to make guitars that i fucking love yep and eight strings are still so unusual especially when you get a multi-scale especially when you've got an eight string multi-scale with a wangy bar on it jesus christ you know with a whamalo up in there so 
yeah, I just want to do things that I like. But you kind of mentioned that I do these kind of crazy, very modern guitars, and then I do these classic guitars. Mm. But the common theme is that, again, organic curves and all of that kind of yeah. stuff. But when you look at one of my tellies, it's clearly it harkens back to a Fender telly and it's very faithful in a lot of ways, but it's also completely me yeah. in other ways. And when I do a hot pink multi-scale Explorer, um, that's still me as well. So I don't discriminate and I find the common ground by getting these ultra modern guitars and giving them beautiful classic curves and, and organic transitions and things. And I get these classic guitars and I modernize them by putting scarf jointed necks in them and doing transitions and mm -hmm. adding carbon fiber and all of this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, when I make it, you know, like what makes a temple guitar? Well, I make them, <laughs> you know? So when I make it, I've, I've honestly, I've just never thought about, oh, this is going to, this might upset a few of the fans or whatever. It's just yeah. like, no way. They love it. Yeah. The more crazy I get, the more everybody's out there going, you go, man. You know, like it's just, there's a lot of positivity and good vibes and encouragement. So yeah, you know, do the classics a bit differently and get the, these modern guitars and give them some classic features as well, because mm. They're classic and they're still with us, so they must have worked on some level. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That's to answer my question, my my next question. So, that's good. God damn it! No, no, no. This this, this is good. Um, do you have sort of like any preference of on what you do? Like, how do you? Let me rephrase that. I'll wait. How? How do you decide? How do you decide? what you're going to make what your next project's going to be it's hard like if it's not for a customer yeah um i hate to bring it here but this is just like the the answer that comes to mind like you know that for the last week or so i've been I've been grieving the loss of a very dear friend mm -hmm. and uh the problem was i had to go go out on a job and it was early morning and it was about 15 minutes before i had to walk out the door i swear i'm going to answer your question um, and I looked at the news and the news said that my friend Annalise had been found dead in her apartment and it was, it was tragic. And in my life, I've had death around me all the time. And I was always really stoic about it. People so close to me died. I had my, um, you know, my ex-girlfriend that I love very much. She committed suicide. Um, and, and so, and, and I'd always just gone, Okay you know, sad, but it didn't stop me or slow me down, didn't mess me up. And I thought, this is just who I am. And I could bank on it. And uh, yeah, I found out about Annalise, who Annalise, sorry. And um, I had, I had a, you know, we had a very sort of interesting relationship and, um, and I just wasn't ready for it. And it, it blew my mind apart. And uh, as I said, I had to go out on a job and I was just in bed crying for the first time in years and uh you know i hope that no one listening knows what this feels like but unfortunately most people do and uh and at the same time i was so rocked because i didn't know that i i didn't know i cried i didn't know i'm not ashamed of it or anything you know but um it really it really caught me unawares and and the depth of feeling and of course all of the different what could I have done? You know, all the, all the questions that people ask. And I, and I, and I, I had to go, 
you know i had to go and i had to get that money so it was like i i i talked to myself a lot and living out in the country you can get away with it um but yeah i, I did some self-talk which i i really believe in as part of mental health and, and creativity and people like marcus aurelius who's one of the greatest thinkers of all time was a massive proponent of self-talk journaling introspection anything that puts you in touch with you mm -hmm. you know and so i just said to myself as everybody has to get your ass in the shower dickhead you know like this is all very sad but you can't afford to break down right now and she doesn't want you to break down right now you know so get it and how's this for a how's this for a terrible kind of link but it's exactly the same kind of thing when you're making a guitar but in a more joyful way mm -hmm. where i'll sit down and and basically like i'll i'll see something on instagram and i'll go yuck and i do that a lot with guitars i just think why the fuck did you do that and uh things that i would never do like those guitars that have like epoxy they're two different bits of wood and they're epoxied together mm -hmm. or led fret markers or like pictures of madonna airbrushed on your guitar like mm -hmm. go fuck yourself yeah um i have strong feelings about that and so i'll see these things and i'll just go that's shit here's what i do yep. you know and um and then i end up with a file of all of these kind of inspo guitars mm -hmm. and it's instead of being a negative thing and being grief stricken it's just like you're overwhelmed with desire to make all of these great looking guitars and you know there are so many different kinds of sunburst did you know that <laughs> you know and they're yep. all rad yeah so and how and and you can make one guitar and give it one sunburst and then make an identical guitar and give it a different sunburst and one is going to be the clear winner you know so mm -hmm. So you just got to make a decision. You got to sit down and just be really brutally hard with yourself and forget about, oh, my heart is so on fire for this right now or that right now. You just got to go, what's next? Make a decision. Just just get in the shower, dickhead. You know what yep. I mean? Yeah. Yep. So my mind is broken. I'm sorry, everyone. But that's how I think. So when it comes to making guitars, it's really, really, really hard. And it makes me upset a lot of the time because there's so many beautiful things that I want to share with my 15 followers. But... um there's just no money there's not enough time well there's not enough money there's not enough time and sometimes i just have to prioritize things so an example of that is when i was still in paran i prioritized tellies mm -hmm. and that's why i've got telly thin line style guitars unless you're from fender in which case they're nothing like it <laughs> deluxes i mixed them up and made deluxe lines um classic tellies but i modernized them all you know and not modernized like um that guy from is it slipknot mm -hmm. that plays the tellies is it somebody oh i can't remember what his name is because i'm not i'm i'm not big into him but he's got his own kind of like um range of tellies and everybody jim root is it possibly i'm not sure yeah cool so he, he, he he's a big telly guy yeah. and i think john five He's a big telly guy. Yeah. And again, he's not a guy that I really follow. Yeah. But I just went, let's make tellies. Yep. And I, I'm a Strat lover. Like mm -hmm. Stevie Ray is everything to me. Um, but tellies, I just decided tellies. And it's been pretty good so far. So, 
that that's that's where it is it's a really hard decision to make it's like if you're a billionaire and you can eat anything for dinner that you want you just got to make a decision yeah you know and i guess it's a good problem to have oh i've got all this infrastructure and the ability to create all these guitars yeah but then you got to pick one yeah it's a good analogy this probably isn't but that's kind of you think well, it, it made sense to me we got there and not a lot makes sense to me so <laughs> yeah um well let's talk about your workshop itself yes which is your garage converted yeah um and i'm going to do for those interested on youtube if i get around to doing the youtube i'm going to do a full build from the ground up so if you're a person that's like i think i'd like to be a luthier I'm going to show you everything that I did and you can copy me and I'll give you the files and the blueprints or else you can say, that guy's an idiot and go your own way. And either way, I've done my job. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I guess, I mean, we're we're, we're not sitting in the workshop at the moment. Negative. We're in another little creative area that you've got here. We're in the tech room. Tech room. Which has been set up in anticipation of the YouTube channel. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks, man. No worries. I never come in here because I'm not doing YouTube. Yeah, yet, yeah. But, you know, yeah. there you go. Um, walk us through. Walk us through what you've got in the workshop. Okay. Um, as best you can. Okay. Um, I th- I don't think it would be like a, a sensible idea to talk about all of the individual um, machines and stuff that are in there because if you're a woodworker, you kind of know what you need you yeah. kind of know what what like it's a woodwork operation right it, yeah, it, it, it does look like that like yeah. when you walk in um but the thing is the thing about luthiers is they like to generally a lot of them like to make their own tools and to like their uh, make their own templates and jigs so a jig mm-hmm. is a thing it's basically kind of like a machine might not have any moving parts or it might but it's sort of something that you use to interact one tool with a workpiece. So say if you think about an output jack on a telly, how they've got those things called electrosocket jacks that fit in flush with the body. Um, and they have to be positioned perfectly, you know, in the middle of that 45 millimeter depth of the body and along the center line of that edge. Um, and so I, I made a jig where you just clamp your body in and you get a router and you plunge it down and when you take the body out, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And that means that you can do body, you can do that operation again and again by hand, repeatedly and accurately every time and it just saves you heaps of time and, and stress too because uh, 99% of luthery I think is measuring things and then measuring them 15 more times because once you cut that beautiful piece of mahogany or koa, you're screwed if you mm-hmm. didn't do it right. So, um, so jigs are really, really good in that respect. And it's, it's really surprised me because the thing that makes me different, and I think you alluded to this earlier, was a lot of luthiers kind of hit me up for my, for my technology, the things that I make to make my life easier. The irony is now I don't need any of those jigs because I've gotten so attuned to my CNC machine and designing for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I, uh, the thing about my workshop, if a woodworker a salty old woodworker walked in there. He'd first he'd yell at me for having a CNC machine because they're apparently blasphemous. But um, 
they could spend five minutes just poking around in the cupboards and having a look and then they could go and build whatever they need to build because it's all going to make sense to yep. them but uh the thing about it is it's not set up where wood comes in one side and guitars come out the other it's not chaotic but um because i make so many different types of guitars and i do so many different things which is just expected it's not just me it's everybody there's kind of like a central area that i work from and then everything kind of radiates out from that got a lot of modular um infrastructure and things like carts on wheels where everything's all in there um i don't go for drawers because drawers things just go in there and get lost forever yeah. and so you know i try and get all my tools out there and in your face and usable but um yeah it's i mean people can see it in in bits and pieces on insta and they'll see deeper into it in youtube if i'm not lazy but um it's not i don't think it's much to look at um in the way that when you look at bmw or tesla and where they're making things and it's like whoa this is incredible it's it's probably not like that for most people but at the same time i've had to kind of in the year that i've closed the doors build it into something that it's going to look good on camera mm -hmm. so it's a set as well as a workshop yep and you can see that when you look up and just like a sitcom you know you got the sitcom set and then you look up and there's just all these intense lights yep. and things yep. so that's kind of like what would make my workshop a little bit unique mm -hmm. um, because it's not just a workshop but um yeah the center of it now like i say is the cnc machine and the cnc machine's been developing over time so it, it started out just as a regular cnc machine and it was okay and now it's this super precise ridiculous piece of high technology and then in late march early april it's getting another another upgrade and it's turning into like voltron you know it's going to be much bigger even more precise to like hundredths or thousandths of a millimeter right. every single time yep. super strong so it's just going to eat wood mm -hmm you know all this kind of stuff so that's i'm excited about that and it's gotten to the point when i think about the workshop that i look at all these tools that i spend so much money on and so much time buying and and worrying about obtaining and everything and i just don't need 99 percent of them anymore yep. because i do my modeling in the computer and it allows me to go in and if a bee's dick had a dick i'd be able to be right up in there and look at individual yep. molecules mm -hmm. you know what i mean and that gives me a huge amount of control to a certain extent because wood moves yep. and nothing's ever simple. So it's like, oh, yeah, I've designed it perfectly. And yep. then you go somewhere humid and it's like, oh, it's a different piece of wood now. But, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my workshop. You know, I've got all the usual things like bandsaws and table saws and routers mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. And none of that's very exciting. Um, and sometimes I still will just bang things out by hand here and there, Yep. you know, because I've got, I've got that flexibility. But yeah, I guess the short answer is check it out on Insta or YouTube. And that is not a plug. No, I, I hate social media and I'm not into marketing. I don't care if none of you follow me or everyone does. I probably won't follow anyone back. <laughs> um, but if you message me and you're a human being and, and you want to connect, I'm there, dude. Like, let's let's be friends. So, yeah, hopefully all, I highly all recommend, those answers. Highly recommend checking it out. It's awesome. Um, what's what's would you say is one thing in the in the workshop that you couldn't 
live or you couldn't operate without. Yeah, this and that and that can be you know a piece of machinery. It can be your CNC machine, which is pretty impressive to uh, to watch, by the way. Um, yeah, it's fun, isn't it? It is watching fun. A robot it's cool. Yeah, I know. It's, it's like watching one of those like three D printers almost in reverse. It's, yeah, yeah. Because it takes away material. Yeah. Um, look, that's a really great question. Thank you. You're welcome. I ask it to all my guests. And uh, um, just another one. <laughs> but um, I'm sorry to give you such a dull answer, but this is the truth. The one thing in the workshop I couldn't function without is a highly accurate rule, which is what you call a ruler if if, if you've got an education. I thought you were going to say like no shoes or something. Yeah. I, I'm not. I, I'm terrible for safety. So, yeah, yeah I've, I've <laughs> got to lift my game if I start recording things because mm-hmm. I'm going to have all these salty old people saying, you can't do that. Yep. And they'll be right, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, something that most people don't realize is that if you buy a rule from here or a ruler from here and a ruler from there and you put them together, they're going to be different. Yeah, right. And I didn't know that. And um, so it's really important to invest money and buy precision engineered squares, rules, things like that. Um, Because even if you're out, like I say, by a tenth of a millimeter, that matters, especially if you're cutting fret slots or something, you've got to intonate properly. It's not, not, not negotiable. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it's just a stupid metal ruler. Get a, get a really good one. And um, everything else, literally everything else flows from that. Yep. Because you've got to start with your dimensions. So that's how it is. That's crazy. That's something I would never have thought of. Well, I could, me neither. But, you know, you mentioned the CNC machine. If we got stranded on a desert island and I had my, my knife with me, I could still make guitars mm. take forever. And I'd be really grumpy, but we'd get there. And, um, and, and that's just it. You know, the tools... You've probably heard this from old people a million times, people even older than me, but <laughs> the tools, they're not what matter. You know, they just get you there and there's yeah. so many different ways to skin a cat. Yeah. So the CNC, oh, it's lovely when I can just set it up. And, uh, you know, just to be clear, I might have spent hundreds of hours or literally two weeks working on something before I'll cut it. So it's not a cop out, mm. you know, and I can do it by hand if you want. I've got nothing left to prove. Yeah. But when you set that CNC machine off in motion and then I can go off and do other things, awesome. I've yeah. got an employee and I'm yeah. not paying them shit. Yeah. You know? So it's yeah. electricity. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, imagine the, uh, the bill would be... It's not pretty, but it's necessary. And, yeah. it, you know, like I say, it adds to the, um, the overall cost of yeah. guitars. And, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're wondering, oh, okay, Temple, you know, I just made you sound like an idiot. Um, and you're thinking, yes, Temple. You know, how much does a Temple guitar cost? I'm so intelligent. Um, I, I don't get out of bed for less than $3,000. And again, you might think he's so arrogant, you'd be right. But it's just, it's just economically not viable. Mm. And the amount of, you know, it takes about 100 hours, more or less, to make a guitar, depending on the guitar, like how long is a piece of string. That's it. But... Um, it's intense. If you and break that down to an hourly rate, it's, uh, it's not a lot. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I do, I do this for the love. Mm-hmm. I really, really do. And so does everyone else that I know that does it. Yep. You know, no one's trying to be rich. Mm. This is the wrong game yeah. for that. Yep. You know, build a time machine. Just being a musician in general. <laughs> invest in Bitcoin in 2016 mm-hmm. and get mm-hmm. out in the summer and that's how you do it. But yep. don't go into making guitars. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, What's your day-to-day look like? I'm glad you asked. 
because following you on Instagram, you get up at 4.30 every day and you smash the gym and you eat healthy and you're a loving husband and father and, you know, you go to work and you destroy hundreds of dollars worth of bottles in one go with your forklift. Yeah, I'm quite good at that. That's, that's you know, that's awesome. I love it. I know you don't love it, but I love those posts. And, you know, you're all about inspiring everyone to be better. Um, and I don't do that. So. Well, I wouldn't say that. Well, it's nice of you to say that. But from my perspective, um, as far as like day-to-day activity is concerned, the reason is... Um, from childhood, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD and dysthemia. And this is a thing that you said you wanted to talk about, like the, you know, mental health mm. stuff. And, and I really, especially with the events recently, I really am glad to have the opportunity to talk yeah. about it. So uh, dysthemia, if you don't know what that is, it's basically um, another name for persistent depressive disorder, which is considered to be a generally untreatable form of depression. Um, it's like if your depression has depression. Right. And uh, in my case, it means I have super high levels of suicidal ideation and anxiety that never stops. So I've learned to put on a good face in public. And this is like my dirty secret because a lot of people meet me and they think he's so confident and everything. And it's a lie. It's a complete lie. So um, I put on a good face in public and no one can tell. But inside I'm a mess and I'm always a mess and I'm a mess right now. You know, there's this anxiety Mm -hmm. inside of me that's just always been with me. It's never left. So some days I'm up early enough to see you post your first Insta of the day. And other days I'm in bed for two weeks. I'm unable to cope, can't move. And I'm just trying to find a reason to stay alive. Like literally just how am I meant to hang in here, you know? And that's not glamorous at all, but it's the truth. So I moved out to the country here and I have the benefit as a result of that to you know be able to go for long hikes in the country and to be around animals and all of that kind of stuff we have like blue tongue lizards in our lounge room and hallway Mm -hmm. making appearances and things like that um and i love that i love that so i guess waking up in the country is a daily habit that i've set up for myself because i moved out here on purpose but when it comes to routine I, i i know for a fact that i can't keep one and I don't know how I did it for as long as I did in the other roles that I played, but I know that trying to hold it together um, did damage to me, you know? Um, So it's really important in my case to not have a routine. And that's one of the things that I was really excited to kind of talk about Mm. on here because with the writer's block and the Insta and the podcast, it's, it's about, you know, it's about direction and it's about, connecting people with strategies to achieve their you know their goals and their objectives and to live a healthier more balanced life and i'm all about that but here i am saying hey guess what it's not about for everyone because everyone's different it's not about getting up every day and doing what you do for everyone works for you and it's great you look great but for me that would that would be very very injurious to my to my health um so yeah it took it took ages to acclimatize because of those old roles that I used to play. And in both of those roles as a, ba- you know, bodyguard and a mm-hmm, tech, mm-hmm. you have to have backups and contingencies for every little thing, threat and risk analyses, and you, and you plan every move long before you make it. And now the only planning I do is I make space around my engagements or my responsibilities in case, you know, so I've got a window on either side of it of a week or whatever yep. in, in case things get dark and I need to disengage from life mm-hmm. for a while. Yep. So 
no routine is the best routine for me and it keeps things fresh and interesting yeah let's just say so yeah that's that's the best way i can answer that one that's fascinating and that's and and i appreciate you being so open and honest about it no it's 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 important to me actually yeah. it's really important to me it's crazy because when am i allowed to drink a sip of water no no you're not, okay, not at I'll, all. Just, I'll just head up this whiskey <laughs> You know, the reason um, I wanted to talk about mental health and I'll have a few other um, people on the podcast, hopefully, to talk about this topic because I think it's, you know, it's obviously very important. Um, yeah, it totally is. It's because, I, you know, I would always see this correlation between uh, mental health and, and depression and creatives. Yes. And, and, and you know, <laughs> musicians and... And it's because, you know, most of the creative people, like all the creative people I know, they're, you know, they've either come from a, a fucked up childhood or, suffering, you know, man. You know there's, there's something broken there yeah. and we're all like that, yep. you know. Um, and I sort of wanted to, to, to sort of piece all that together and, you know, when, when I was first putting together this idea, um, the year before last, I think it was, um, it was the same time that Chris Cornell took, took his life. Yep. And then um, old mate from Lincoln Park, Chester, Chester, as well. And I was like, what, you know, what, what is going on here? Like, Especially because both of those guys were attractive dudes with all the money in the world that were adored by literally millions of people and they were ridiculously talented. Yeah. Can I just share a meme verbally that I read? Sure. I saw a meme about... Chester and it was just uh, I think it was taken from Reddit so it was a screen mm -hmm. grab and this guy had gone to a Linkin Park concert and he said man I was watching the concert and he was singing and his voice I just thought his voice is just about to crack like he was just giving it everything yeah his voice was just about to give out and then I remembered this is Chester fucking Bennington mm -hmm. and it was just like mm -hmm. nailed it Yep. That guy couldn't sing badly if he tried. Yeah, yep. so, exactly. So there's a bit of like celebrating Chester, mm. you know. But you're right. Uh, the correlation is there. And you have people like Lady Gaga, who's ridiculous, but so influential. And mm. she's being really open about mental health. you got people like Kristen Bell, um, the guy that plays uh, Captain America, uh, Chris Evans. Mm -hmm. Just... Uh, Ellen DeGeneres you've got all of these like legitimate megastars coming out and saying uh, yeah guys I got depression and uh, and I'm suffering yeah you know my friend Annalise passed because she had horrific depression and actually I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk about this because one of the things that we talked about regarding this was when she kind of realized that she wasn't just grieving for horrible things that had happened in her life but she actually had a, a legitimate problem with depression. You know, she went to her friends and she told them about it. Yeah. Are you okay? No, I'm not. Mm. And she got hostility and everybody got angry. Well, not everyone, because she has some, had some wonderful people in her, in her sphere of, of influence. But yeah, there was just so much hostility and, and she'd even spoken about it in the media and stuff because people's way of thinking is, you're gorgeous. You know, like she was one of the world's top 20 most beautiful women constantly voted been mm -hmm. a model since she was a kid you know a, a young woman all of, the, all of this kind of stuff 
She was a multimillionaire. She's traveling the world. She was adored by everybody that met her and lots of people that didn't. So, you know, the, the concept is, from an external point of view, bitch, you got everything. Shut the fuck up. Yep. You know, don't talk to me about you can't mm-hmm. get out mm-hmm. of bed, right? And I had the same thing when I first started talking to people because they'd say, oh, man, you live behind the velvet rope most of the time. You're off on tour. I'll talk to you. And it's just like, which rock star did you, you know? Mm. Or my, this is the thing I remember. I'd, I'd, I used to do like lunch with people and stuff and my phone would ring and so people would see who it was and they'd just be like, oh yeah, you know, because sometimes it would be someone that has a profile or what yep. have you. Yep. They're people too. They like to have lunch. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so when I'd talk about depression, they'd just be like, fuck off. You're, you're killing it. Yeah. You know, you've got no right. And the thing that people don't understand is, well, most people don't understand for a start that money isn't the answer to anything. Mm. And it's great to be able to pay your your bills and everything, but it's not it's not the answer, and it's nothing to strive for, you know. It's destructive, and 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 greed is the root of all evil. You know, they, I'm not religious, you're not religious, but you'll take good wisdom where you can find it, whether mm. it's on the Bible or on a toilet wall at uni. And uh, it's the root of all evil. They've known it for thousands of years, yeah. and it's true. So, yeah. you know, people people don't seem to understand beyond that that. Um, Depression doesn't give a shit who you are or what you've got. It just hits you and it hits you so fucking hard. And you either work out strategies to cope or you don't. And unfortunately, Chris, you know, uh, Kurt, Cobain, uh, all these all these amazing people um, that we've lost, they lost because they made a short-term decision for a long-term problem. Mm. And... I think my mum kind of said it the best way to my to my way of thinking. She'd say, sometimes you're on top of your own personal mountain and sometimes you're at the bottom of the sea and you're drowning. But when you're down there, no, you're always going to stand on a mountain again. That's life. Mm. It's a roller coaster. You yeah. know? Life is a highway. So, um, you know, th- that's just the way it is. And, and, and when you're in this immense pain and you're just gasping for, for relief and just please turn this off, a shotgun will turn it mm. off, but it means that you're off forever. And um, unfortunately, the people that we've been talking about, they decided that that was a decision they were prepared to make. Yeah. And it wasn't about, I don't care about my family or the people that love me or anything. It's just, I'm in anguish. Please make this stop. So, you know, that's the, the extreme kind of uh, limit of it. And then sort of before that, you've got, great songs that come out of this suffering and this confusion and this desire. I can't get no satisfaction, you know, like this is nothing new and uh, it's all the same. Only the names mm. will change. If you know that one, then you're cool. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's funny. Like, well, I mean, it's not funny, but it's, it's interesting to note that, you know, so many brilliant things come out of these or come, come out at these low points. Balance. You know what I mean? They have to. Yeah. That's, yeah. Like, we used to joke about it within Brian Crimson Eyes all the time that when our singer Josh would have a girlfriend, he'd be all happy and mm. everything's cool. Yeah. But when he'd break up with that girlfriend... That's when the hits would start that's coming. That's when he would do <laughs> his best work. Yeah. And we'd often joke and say, oh, 
we need to get rid of this one. Like, yep. we, need, we need to get rid of the girlfriend. Like, yeah. um, because we knew angry Josh, down Josh, was the most creative one. Yeah, he can bark like a dog, can't yeah, he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. But, yeah. But, but yeah, that just sort of, you know, brings me back to, to my point that, you know, creative things and good things can, can come from these, these low moments. Absolutely can. And that's the important thing to remember. You know, it's a cliche, but if you're going through this stuff, reach out, call Lifeline, whatever, whatever it takes. Absolutely. Whatever it takes, because you might think that you don't have value, but you, guess what? You're wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's that simple, yeah. you know, and that's not to say sort of every life is precious and all of that kind of stuff. There are some shitty people out there in the world. We know that. But uh, in my experience, the vast majority of people who are suffering and going through these things, they're not the shitty people and they don't mean any harm to anyone else. They just, you know, there's a love deficit mm. in the world. And that's kind mm. of weird for a couple of metal dudes mm. to sit around talking about. But man, you could get any two metal dudes in the world and I guarantee they'll agree with you, you know, because yep. metal people are the best people. Yep. But yeah, um, do do something. Don't don't make stupid decisions because they are they are stupid decisions. And although you might not realize it, the people that you leave behind are just left with questions and anguish that never goes away. So mm. don't do that to them either. Ah, yeah, that's my PSA. What do you do to? I mean, you talk talk about sort of meditation a lot. What do you do to switch off? Yeah. Um. So I listen to ASMR videos on YouTube. Um, Which stands for ASMR or, or auto meridian sensory response or something. Right. It's those things where people are like, they might get their phone and be like, do tapping, or, mm -hmm. or they might do wet mouth sounds, which I can't stand. I think it's creepy. There's this one lady who is from Russia, and she's just got this really gentle way of talking, and it just gives you those tingles right. up and down your spine. And I don't do it for the tingles. I just do it because in my life. Um, you know, I lead a very solitary existence and I'm very kind of, I'm not, I don't not like people, but I'm very antisocial. And so it's a really nice way for me to, in my own room, in my own space, in a completely non-sexual way to appreciate feminine energy and to be soothed and nourished mm -hmm. by that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I listen to ASMR videos on YouTube. I eat delicious food, which is awesome. Um, go for big hikes in the country, like I mentioned. I spend lots of time every day journaling and being introspective. Like, that's huge for me. Yep. Trying to understand myself, my motivations, calling myself on my bullshit. Like, I refuse to think a thing just because it's convenient. And I love it when I'm wrong. So, if I say something like, this is the case, and then someone else comes on and goes, actually, no, check this out, you're wrong. I'm like, thank you. Mm -hmm. Whereas most people are kind of like, yeah, get fucked. Yep, yep. I love that. I love that um, nothing turns me on mentally more than perspectives. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of always trying to walk that thing I call the path, which is the path to self-betterment. And it's great when you meet people who are on the path also. And it doesn't matter where on the path they are. doesn't matter where they're at. Just so long as they're on there, that's all, that's all I care about. So that's nourishing to me. But um, every hour spent kind of being introspective is an investment in a better future. Mm -hmm. I truly, I truly believe that because I'm living it. Yeah. Um, and I also do what I can to not get too on in the first place. Mm -hmm. So going back to religion and wisdom, um, Buddha said a lot of things that made sense. 
and it makes a lot of sense to me when he talks about being um, more dispassionate. So instead of investing in outcomes, and you mentioned this also, you know, revealing your Buddha nature, but um, talking about the writer's block and its future, and instead of investing in outcomes and timelines and saying, I want this, you've said, this is a thing that is, is going to unfold as it will. And that's, to me, that's the best possible attitude you can have and the best recipe for success. Because as they say, the road to, you know, um, what is it? The road to uh, disappointment is, uh, is paved with something. And you can look it up yourself because <laughs> you're all smart. But um, yeah, just don't kind of invest in outcomes. Don't, don't say this is how it's got to be. And when you connect yourself to something and you cling tenaciously to it, then you're setting yourself up for a fall and that's yeah. and that's basically what that is um another thing is i'm super selective about my interactions with people i've said that mm -hmm. before i don't want to get polluted by toxic attitudes i don't want vampires in my life yeah. um or people that thrive on drama mm -hmm. they don't know Ooh. that what they're doing isn't good but it's, it's not good it's so toxic it is um i don't drink or take drugs i'm not moral about it mm -hmm. um but that's my personal kind of thing and i haven't for two decades yep. If people want to party, you know, that's cool, but I don't. Mm -hmm. I like those T-shirts where it's like, you know, I don't want to party or whatever. It's, it's, it's kind of cool now instead of fear of missing out. People are talking about joy of missing out. And it's like, yeah, my, my, my people are awakening. Yep. Yep. So I personally, I focus on gentle and beautiful things in life, simple things, natural things, and eschew, if you will, all of the constructs that have been so ubiquitous in modern life. And that stretches to social media. Um, and, and everything, just yeah. everything. Um, so I'm only on, um, on Insta, that's it, just as temple and, um, deleting everything else was kind of like, uh, that fad for, for minimalism. Um, once I deleted all of that extra profile and, you know, I used to have artist profiles up and music that people could listen to and all of that. And I just did my best to delete all of it. Not because I'm not proud of it, but who gives a shit? Mm. There's so much information out there. And I don't want to be one of those people that's standing up on social media going, look at me. Yeah. Because there's just, just too much of that, you know. L look inside yourself. How's that? Try that one. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to be told how to live my life by an app. And stepping away from that was super healthy and, and cutting off from toxic, um, toxic things. Um, we've talked about... I post really sporadically and I use it how I want. Um, so I'm not kind of connected to Instagram all the time or anything else, constantly checking my phone. I don't, I don't yeah. give a shit. Uh, and I, in fact, that's something I need to lift my game because I do have a lot of like genuine good people want to contact mm. me and I might not get back to them for two days and I, I'm not happy about that. I'd like to lift my game there. But that's just an interpersonal thing, not a mm. social media thing. So yeah, um, that's how I turn off is try not to engage with toxic things in the first place. And then the things that do work for me and that, you know, I, I know that they, that they work and they're beautiful and nourishing, just do them. Yep. That's pretty simple. Yeah. Really. I'm not that smart, dude. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like a, it sounds like a smart sort of approach to it all. It seems to be working so far. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, what would you say have been some, uh, some personal highlights throughout all this? I mean, you've got so many, like, that is true. Yeah. So cut me off anytime. Um, 
I'll never forget hanging out after a spoken word tour with Rollins mm-hmm. on a street corner and he was going to go in and up to his hotel room. And we had a couple of friends in common from touring world, you know, from music world. Um, and you'll notice that I've got an Einstein Neubauten tattoo on my wrist, which most people equate with Rollins, but it's actually a German industrial band from the, mm-hmm. from the nineties, eighties. And, um, I met the bass player when I was in Dubai of all places playing in a, in a like commercial duo, you know, stereotypically beautiful, talented singer mm-hmm. and this dude playing guitar and backing tracks mm-hmm. in a, in a fancy hotel. And, uh, yeah, I met Mark Chung there. Uh, he was talking to the singer and she introduced me and, and he was like, Oh, nice tattoo thanks for getting that and i had no idea yep. who he was and it just blew my mind because that's the only band tattoo that i have mm-hmm. and i was just like i am talking to mark chung i can't believe it yeah and he um he was also the senior vice president for sony music europe so it's mm-hmm. not like he's just some dude from an obscure yeah. band he yeah. was like you know somebody important in music world so rollins and i had him in common and a love for that band and mm-hmm. stuff and you know i mean you can't hang out with rollins and not get philosophy not get good wisdom and you know i don't agree with everything he says he doesn't agree with everything i say but he's good people and so that's a treasured memory yeah um just sort of on the comedic side because you know rock and roll mm-hmm. i once went into a hotel after a tour the tour had wrapped and i walked in and there was this massive pyramid of tvs and they were like not flat screens they were tv tvs and the text for the tour had gone up into everybody's rooms taken the tvs out made a pyramid wired them up to a single dvd player and they're playing hardcore swedish porn brilliant so you walk in there and it's just like ah, oh. <laughs> and that was that was hilarious that's great and while we were there um for some reason i don't know why this is but there are plenty of witnesses so that's cool um the reception was completely not staffed Maybe they like just stopped being there after a certain period of time, but that's you know that's weird. Mm. But yeah, they did that, and there was no security, so the phone would ring a reception, and I'd go and answer it, and I'd be like, you know, blah 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 hotel, and they'd say, yeah, you know, I want some cheese toasties, you know, delivered up to my room, and I'd be like, room number, please, sir, you know, and write <laughs> it down. We're on it. Hang that's up. Great. And I was, I remember um, Pedro from Killing Heidi really got into this. Mm-hmm. So he'd be like, what are we making? And we'd go into the kitchen and, you know, cook up this stuff. And then we, I probably shouldn't have mentioned his name because it's, it's a bit like, it could be a little bit embarrassing, but we'd go up and knock on the doors and he'd be all like, I'm Pedro from Killing Heidi. Like, this is going to be awesome for that person on the other side of the door. And then the door would open and they'd just take and go cheers. And that's it. You know, that's the end of it. So that's great. So that was funny. Um, <laughs> You know, he could have been anywhere scoring groupies and yep. writing yep. hits, but instead he was making cheese toast. That's hilarious. Um, I was doing a show once years ago and Julian Casablancas from The Strokes came up and, and stood next to me, like shoulder to shoulder. I never met him before, had nothing to do with him. And it was a Strokes tour, but I wasn't working for The Strokes. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talked for five minutes and I didn't understand a single word he said because he was speaking drug language. Mm-hmm. And I just kept saying, sure, you know, uh-huh, like being supportive. Yep. And, uh, and then we, when we finished talking, he gave me this big hug like we're brothers now, you know, and he walked off mumbling to himself and I was just like, shit, hey, like that guy is out of it. And then maybe an hour, an hour and a half later, he's on stage 
killer show, yep. speaking English like a normal human mm. being, sensible human words. It was insane. It was just really crazy. So I don't know if he was just... No, he wasn't just taking the mickey. Like, he can just recover super fast, I yep. guess. So is that... Most people out there would be amazed at how many heterosexual band guys like to travel naked with each other in the in the Tarago or in the tour bus. Yeah, I've, I've done that before. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so yeah. you're you're you were one of them. Yeah, just one of those things. We decided the first time we were on tour and driving across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yeah, like we should totally do this naked. Got to do it. So we did. Yep. Was, yeah. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know what the significance was really. Well, you make your own fun on tour. Yeah, you've got to, yeah. So um, there was one band who used to turn the heat up to 35 degrees in the vehicle and <laughs> they'd be naked and sweaty. This is Australia in the summer. And they'd sweat for hours in the nude just so that they could pull into a, a bar or a pub and have like that ice cold beer. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, do you want me to just stock the vehicle with ice cold beers? And they looked at me like I was the insane one. <laughs> but these same guys, um, they glued, they tried to do that classic super glue the furniture to the ceiling trick in the hotel mm-hmm. and the roof collapsed. Oh, no. Yeah. And so the um, manager came in and he was screaming like blue in the face. He was not a happy camper. And, um, but they were made of money, this band. And so the ho- the uh, the manager just walked in, tore off a check, handed it to the to the uh, hotel manager, like, shut up, bitch, you know, just like dismissed, mm. you know, and walked out. And there was so many tens of thousands of dollars written on that check that the problem just immediately evaporated. So uh, that was interesting. But they had this policy that every Tarago or every vehicle that they hired, when they returned it, it had to have at least one of the wheels broken off. Because they were just burning money, you know. It was yeah. just too many dollars, not enough cents. So I got to meet a lot of my musical heroes. And like we were talking about before, almost every one of them was just like amazing and human and just connecty and lovely. Yeah. Um, which I didn't expect going in. And it's normally like the the new people and the less popular people that are the real not-so-nice people. Yeah. Um, I met my dear friend Annalise Barakenzik after the Logies. Mm-hmm. One um, one time when I was playing with Anastasia, and I'll always treasure that note because we don't get to have them anymore, you know. So that you know that was beautiful. But I honestly think the best in my story could be wrong, but I feel like the best is yet to come because I'm just getting started over here, and I feel I keep saying I got caught with my pants down, but I kind of feel like I'm caught with my pants down because what I'm doing is just what I'm doing, and when people connect with me and say it's meaningful to them or they enjoy it or it's you know or even if it's just yeah good on you you mm. know it's like what i haven't done anything yet it's because like, it's because you don't have an agenda behind you well i'm just thinking you just wait you, yeah you know you just wait to see to see what's going on but um over the last couple of years i've been really lucky i've connected with some genuinely huge international artists just through instagram i'm not i don't even have a website and they've uh connected with me and said we want to represent your brand we want to work with you and they could work with anyone so i don't know what's Mm. going on but i'll take it um and so yeah i I feel like i'm only at step one of what this thing could be and i'm just really kind of cautiously optimistic and then of course there's the youtube thing that that could be a thing that could be fun or not um 
again, I don't have an agenda. I, I've got to say for the record, I don't care about subscribers or likes. I just hope I can help you if you want or help you to chill out yeah. or make friends with you. So there it is. I love it. I love it. Um, okay. So believe it or not, we've been going for almost three hours. You're kidding me. Kid you not. I'm so sorry, everybody. No, no this is great. Um, I reckon we just wrap it up with uh, five, the five normal questions I ask everyone. Ah, uh, yes. At the end. Because uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure we've covered everything. Oh, cool. Covered most of, uh, most of what I wanted to anyway, I think. Answered your questions. Um, okay. What would you do differently, if anything, if you knew your, your rent and bills were, were covered? I would do the same thing. Yep. Um, because, like I said, I don't care about money at all. I don't have any debts, which is amazing. Mm. Um, and if I didn't run Temple, I'd never spend any sizable amounts of money. Like, I, I don't wear labels and things like that. I'm, I'm a dag. Uh, I've minimized and simplified my life a lot, so my life isn't expensive. And uh, also, I haven't dated anyone in like six years, so every cent that I make is just for me. It's brilliant. Um, ideally, I want to, like, build a tiny house and go and live in it one day but that's like way in the future i think once temples shut down because 99.9 percent .9 of the things that i own are temple infrastructure mm -hmm. and the things that i own just as human being jay vanderwerf there's not there's just the normal things i have a toothbrush and stuff yeah. like that but it is not a lot of stuff yeah. there um i already talked about my commitment to keep temple small i really want to um i really want to stay boutique so yeah, as far as like, um, you know, what I would do different, I feel like I've really landed on my feet. Mm. I feel like I've, I've, I've done what I, what I set out to do. Um, that's it really, you know, I, I don't, I feel like everything that's happened so far and, you know, I'm going to be honest, there have been some brutal things that have happened and, and unfortunately I'm not the only one that can say that. But um, everything that, made me smile or everything that hurt me or you know put me in a hospital or, or you know a psych ward or whatever um it gave me a thicker skin a stronger heart or a bigger pair of horns and uh so i don't regret any of the things and if i had a time machine you know the only thing i'd go back and do is try and rescue my friends that didn't make it yeah you know that's it but as far as, far as i'm concerned mistakes exist for a reason and in uh you know as far as that relates to creativity and and all of that kind of stuff embrace it just be cool um you you fuck up everybody fucks up and i mean here's an example like you know adam savage from mythbusters mm. he you know he worked on the star wars movies he's just like this incredible creative force and one day i was watching him and he um he messed something up and he just couldn't get it and he said ah oh, you, you never see him flap normally, mm. you never see him break. And he was just like, you know what, guys, sorry. This is meant to be a one-day build. I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to go home, have a bath, have a cup of tea. We'll regroup tomorrow. Sorry, I just need to reset. And he did that. And when he did it, I just went, that's incredible. That's mm. what I do. Mm. And so to see that, you know, just like Lady Gaga's got depression and Adam Savage fucks up and all this kind of stuff. Guys, if you're being creative, just just do what you're doing and, and, and don't worry about what could I do different or what could I change? Mm. Just onward and upward, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. It's so beautiful. And if you're, you're suffering from writer's block or like a creative block, 
what would you do? What what would be your go-to move? Um, reset, just like Adam Savage. Yep. You know, um, take a nap. Realize that I'm not terrible and useless. Yep. Everybody hits a wall. If you don't, I, I've never met you. Um, that's it. You know, you just got to reset. Don't make a big deal out of it. Give yourself a break and that creativity and that good energy will come flowing back. Just have faith in it. And that's not like, I don't like that word faith, so you know what I mean. I know. But um, everything comes from within us, good and bad. We create it. So that's why our lives can be radically bettered instantly if we just change our perspective. Um, it's not hippie shit. It's just literally the way our brains, our neural pathways are wired. So your perspective determines your reality. And like everything else in life, the trick is to find the balance. But just give yourself a break and know that you're not the only one. What's one thing you wish they'd taught you in school? Ethics. So how to cooperate, not compete. And mm -hmm. not just me, everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. my answer. Yeah, beautiful. Any favourite books or podcasts? Yes. Um, yours is the only podcast that I listen to. Because oh. I'm on it. <laughs> But um, I'm very much into books and always have been. My holy trinity are Huxley, Offler and Toffler uh, and Orwell. So kind of dystopian future stuff that happens to be occurring. Mm -hmm. um, I love Douglas Copeland and Kinky Friedman for when I just want to kind of just relax and read a book. Um, there are some things that I think should be required reading for everyone. And it kind of feeds into that sort of getting to know yourself and ethics angle. So like Plato things like that should be required reading um albert camus shows us how to be happy and joyful in a in an ambivalent universe and i think that's super important especially for creatives when you're questioning who am i what am i meant to be doing there's this guy called dan Doty um, from canada he's got some incredible writing and thoughts about contemporary loneliness which again i think is is very now and i think everybody in the world should read kierkegaard because he's the guy that smashes the illusions of what the pillars of society are. And it's kind of like he's a necessary first step in defining our own individualities of going onto the path, if you will. Books. Great. I'll put a, uh, put a link to all those books and authors in the, uh, in the show notes. Yeah, I'd be happy to give you those. Yeah, awesome. Um, if you could have a conversation with your 18-year-old self, what would you tell him? So again, that feeds into mental health. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that it's okay to not be okay. Um, I would say don't listen to the stigma that people try and put on you just because they don't understand or because they're in denial about their own situation. Um, you know, like one in five Australians suffer from mental health in any year. That's huge. Massive. And, uh, and it's a big problem. And so we, we shouldn't have this stigma. We, we've got to look at our, um, our social media attitudes towards social media because it's being foisted on us. Oh, conspiracy theory. But yeah, it's being foisted on us to sell us products and, and to weaken our resolve to ideas that aren't naturally healthy for us for the benefit of others and all the spontaneous moments are staged and all the popular people are just there to sell you something. And I'm there to sell you something too. But the difference is I'm never going to hassle you or market to you i'm just yeah. going to do what i do if you like it come along you know so like we could talk forever about mental health and and all of that kind of stuff but yeah any strategy that i can part that i could impart to my younger self 
um, that would allow me to have coped better and not wasted so much time engaging in destructive behavior and connecting with toxic people and wastes of time dead ends. Th- that would be good. But the honest truth is I wouldn't have listened because I was 18. Yeah. Mm. Truth. Yeah. Well, I couldn't think of a, uh, a better way to end it. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Yes, this has been awesome and I think we should definitely do a round two. Oh, your poor stage. listeners. I'm sorry, everyone. No, no. <laughs> even if I'm the only one that listens to it, like I'll, I'll get something out of it for sure. Yay. But it's uh, it's been awesome. So thanks, man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate thanks for, it. Thanks for the chat. Thanks for making these awesome guitars. I can't help it. They're absolutely fantastic to play. It, oh, yeah, you're playing one. Yeah. And wow. honestly, man, it's it's like one of the nicest, if not the nicest guitar I've played. Like. It's true. And to think that you've <laughs> just, just, you know, you put that together in three days. like Actually, I did. And then I took it to Adam Cole and he did a couple of tweaks yep. and just Thanks, sent Kelsey. it into the next level. So yep. you got you got his, you know, his it's loving pleasant. touch as well. Yeah. Awesome. No, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, guys. Aaron again. Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I'd love it if you'd spread the word and share it with anyone you think might actually get something out of it. Also, don't forget to check out the blog at theridersblock.co and follow us on the socials at theridersblockau on Instagram, theridersblockco on Facebook, ridersblockau on Twitter, and we even have a YouTube channel, which I'll throw this episode up on. It's audio only at the moment, but I'm sure down the track we'll probably start filming them too. Till then, you can subscribe to the channel via the link at the top of the blog homepage. Finally, I know it's a pain in the ass. But if you could leave a rating and review on iTunes, that would be amazing. It really does help, I'm told. I don't actually know. But if it does, and you can, that'd be awesome. Thanks, guys. See you next time.